This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your life coach, your guide on the side. Top of the morning to you. Hope you're having a great one. It's Tuesday, which uh, is primary day. It's the day of the primary in California, New Jersey, and a variety of other states. We, everyone, California gets all the attention, but there will be uh, voting in many states today. And um, this is it, supposedly. Well, I mean, one more week, I guess. DC's next week. Yeah. That's it. Then you can all rest. Now, if you watch the news, uh, Hillary won this thing long, long ago. Uh, 10, 15 years ago. But uh, apparently, there's still states that are voting, right? And without the superdelegates, uh, which I guess shouldn't be given till July, then Bernie Sanders says the race is still in play. He's only 260 delegates down. He only needs to win about 95% of the delegates today. So the race is still on, folks. And I'm not sure, honestly, if I am that excited to... Uh, get to the to the general election everybody i think else is but i'm i'm not we'll we'll talk about that in a few minutes also we're going to be talking about a new book out makers and takers the rise of finance and the fall of american business interesting topic coming up which might also be fueling a lot of the anger the frustration behind uh, the election you know certain people are making a lot of money right now and others aren't and it might simply be how we do business today in America and where we focus on the growth, we tend to focus a lot on capitalization on the financial side, but not necessarily on the job side, which you'd think would go hand in hand. But according to our next guest, they might be at odds with each other. Stick with us. We'll be talking uh, in just a few minutes also with Rana uh, Farahor, uh, Faruhar. That's how you say it. It seems wrong, but... It's, it's Rana Faruhar, and she'll be walking us through uh, her new book, and the title is called Makers and Takers, The Rise of Finance and the Fall of American Business. Seriously interesting discussion on that topic, but first let's get to the headlines, find out what's going on around the rest of the country. Terry, what's up with the headlines? Thanks, Matt. According to many sources this morning, this is the fifth Super Tuesday. So just keep that in mind. Super Tuesday, super, number super, five. Super, super, super Tuesday. California, the big prize today. They have over 500 delegates on tap for the Democrats, since the Republican is basically taken care of. Under the radar, five other states vote today. Montana, New Jersey, New Mexico, South Dakota. North Dakota will have a Democratic caucus, so they'll take a little Good. bit longer. Okay. Talk with their neighbors, and uh, we'll find out what... I guess they decide. According to an update tally from the AP, Hillary Clinton has enough support from pledged delegates and superdelegates to be declared the Democratic nominee. She has reached the necessary number of 2,383 delegates, which makes her the winner. Previously, with the uh, without the recent tally including superdelegates, Clinton was expected to secure it by Tuesday, so today, with New Jersey and California voting, along with other states. Uh, Bernie Sanders' campaign quickly released a statement after the AP and NBC News projected that Hillary Clinton is committed is, has the number of delegates uh, to be the nominee. It is unfortunate the media is in a rush to judgment. They are ignoring the Democratic National Committee's clear statement that it is wrong to count the votes of superdelegates before they actually vote in the convention this summer. This is from the campaign spokesman. 
of Bernie Sanders. Secretary Clinton does not have and will not have the requisite number of pledged delegates to secure the nomination. But the two news reporting agencies talked to a bunch of superdelegates, and they said they're going to vote for Clinton. So, yeah, so there you go. So the question well, is... Unless something happens. Should they have announced that, or should they have waited till after the primaries? Yes, they should have waited. Should they have waited? Yes. Or did they just report the facts? Again, let's just say, let's just say, never happened, but Hillary's, Hillary is indicted. If Hillary is indicted in two months, yeah. or in one month, then it matters, the superdelegates, all of a sudden, they really, really matter. And so why wouldn't you just wait? I mean, I get it. Everyone knows she's going to win, but we don't. nobody knows. We're not there yet. We got yeah. Donald Trump in the game. There's a bunch. Someone's going to get hurt. Stuff to be decided. Donald Trump, speaking of, ordered his surrogates during a Monday conference call to intensify their criticisms of journalists and the Mexican-American judge presiding <sighs> over a Trump University fraud case. We will overcome, Trump said, according to two people who were on the call. And I've always won, and I'm going to continue to win, and that's the way it is. According to Bloomberg, floor, uh, former Arizona Governor Jan Brewer pointed out to Trump that his campaign told surrogates to stop talking about the Trump University case. Uh, but the billionaire businessman repeatedly demanded to know who sent that directive and immediately overruled his staff. Mm. Some are pointing to that to show some confusion uh, it, between the candidate and his own staff, maybe some disorganization. Maybe they need to add some. They have one press secretary covering all of Trump's wow. needs. One trying to run a national campaign. One yeah. person. That's crazy. We need to up the staff there. Yeah. Uh, moving on, Tropical Storm Colin made landfall on Florida's Gulf Coast Monday night, but the early Tuesday and early Tuesday, the storm had already passed over northern Florida and southern Georgia and was heading into the Atlantic. The storm dumped three to six inches of rain overnight, and forecasters said the continued precip- uh, precipitation from Colin could dump another eight inches on Atlantic coast from Florida through the Carolinas Tuesday, with tornadoes also possible. Some 10,000 people lost power in Florida, and Governor Rick Scott of Florida to declare a state of emergency. And Matt, a, uh, a crisis. What? Something we all need to pay attention to. What? If you have a peanut allergy, Ooh. you may want to hold off on opening that next box of ding-dongs. Uh, Host, some... Hostess is recalling 7,000 oh, no. case, 700,000 cases of some of its products over undeclared peanut residue that may that might contain this out of uh, CBS. In additional to, addition to the ding-dongs, the items also include... Zingers, chocodiles, and a number of different <laughs> kinds of donuts. Oh, man, that's scary. The FDA has a complete list, including UPC and batch numbers, if you want to check out their website. A hostess supplier told the company it was recalling certain lots of flour due to undeclared peanut residue in the mix. Oh, no, because if you have a child with a peanut allergy and you love a ding-dong, oh yeah, this is a big deal. Death. The scary thing is, what are they going to do with millions of ding-dongs? I don't have a peanut and an I'm allergy. I'm fine. You could send them to me. It seems I like a waste peanuts. just to toss them all. Yeah. I'll take. I'll do it for the country. But I think maybe a peanut-flavored ding-dong would actually be pretty good. Yeah. Like a little nougat or something. Mm. I don't know. Mix up the recipe a little bit. Mm. I'm hungry. But I had a lot of peanut butter today already. Okay. <laughs> if anyone wants to know. I've been... Uh, I've been eating my peanut butter toast every so, morning. So, a lot's been going on with Trump. Yes. This Mexican judge. Yes, not good. Who was born in America. I'm, I'm going with what Trump's calling Yeah, okay. <laughs> he's he, from Indiana. He's, but he's from Indiana, Mexican born judge. in Indiana. <laughs> Parents were from Mexico. I heard an argument yesterday. You know, people have been calling this racist. Mm-hmm. Is this racist or is there 
Is it Trump just pointing out a conflict of interest? It's – I don't know that it's even it – is, this is because he vote, he is uh, he is, Trump is a can- member of a group that gives uh, scholarships to Mexican illegals to yes. go to school. So he's against the immigration plans of Donald Trump. Yeah. So is, is this a conflict of interest or is this probably I, I would racist? not I would not say it's a conflict of interest to the, his case. It might be. I mean, if we were judging if Donald's a good president, it would be against his conflict of interest. But the judge can just vote against Donald. Right. But on his case, no. And in the end, does it matter or is this just Trump talking to his supporters? That's all he's doing. He's like, this is an argument they may agree with. Because this is this is nuts politically. It is. Let's play this audio real quick. Here's a list of the people on this audio uh, cut that uh, Republican leaders, right, that, that, that yeah. spoke out against yeah. Bob, Senator Bob Corker, Senator Marco Rubio, Utah Representative Jason Chaffetz, Speaker of the House Paul Ryan, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, and at the end we'll hear from Maine Representative Senator Susan Collins. People are disturbed that you would want to try to dismiss a judge based on his ethnicity. He needs to stop saying it. That, that man is an American. I don't condone the comments. I completely disagree with the thinking behind that. I couldn't disagree more with what he, what he had to say. It was an appalling statement for Donald Trump to have made. Completely unacceptable. And he owes the judge an apology, and he owes the American people an apology. Right on. Amen. Or is he just pointing out no, he, that this he, judge no. has a conflict of interest? The judge doesn't have a conflict of interest. He, but he is, he is speaking to his racist group, whoever they are. But it's, it's horrible politically. And yet uh, he does it. And I, he's not dumb. He's doing this for a reason. But it also – I mean it seems like it's also nuts just in, um, in his legal case. His yeah. attorneys have got to be rolling over like, <laughs> don't get this guy mad. Yeah. He could call. He could put you in contempt of court. Lindsey Graham came out this morning. What did Lindsey say? Lindsey was for Trump. Yeah. Well, actually, you know, against Trump, running against him, give out his phone number. Not really happy about that. Saw the goofy commercial of him breaking phones with a golf club for some reason. Right. And then, uh, you know, he drops out of the presidential race. He and I guess half-heartedly endorses Trump, and now he's like, "This is ridiculous. We can't do this. We can't let this person run the country." So watch how weird this is. So Trump, what came out against the the Hispanics, anti uh, or the the illegal his illegal Mexicans, illegal aliens, whatever we're calling them, illegals coming into the country. He was yes. against it. Now, it, but everyone's like, "Hey, that's all right," because a lot of Hispanics will still vote for him that are Americans because they they don't want illegal immigration either. Right. Now he's actually offending the yeah. Hispanics that are legal and healthy and awesome and making our economy work beautifully. And now he's offending them. Like, stop. Yeah. Just stop. Stop. There, there is a problem with the stream of consciousness when you just start speaking. I'm serious. Did you see over yeah. the weekend he was at a, a rally and he pointed to my African-American man over here. Jeez. <laughs> That guy's been interviewed so many times. He's yeah. not a Donald Trump supporter. He was there to see what was going on because, you know, the circus. Uh-huh. But he's not a supporter. But Donald Trump points out the one yeah. guy. There's the my African-American man. I mean, really, it's – it just – I think this is going to just get crazier because nobody wants any of these people. No. I mean, really, 
what do you do? We're just going to see a battle of several state Republican parties have come out. They're trying to protect themselves and insulate themselves from both sides. Yeah. And they're saying that this is going to be a vote for the candidate that will do the least harm. And we have to figure out who that person will be. And they're they're just trying not to connect yeah. their their state level Republicans or Democrats. There's there you know the the senators that are running like uh, John McCain in Arizona is really <laughs> quiet. He's trying not to connect quiet. himself to anybody and be very very quiet. Apparently he's running against a, a candidate in Arizona who was talking about chemtrails. You know what chemtrails are? Um, Where the jets are flying over your contrails? head. You see the contrails, yeah. but actually they're dropping chemicals that are doing stuff to alter oh. us. Oh, chemtrails. Yeah, so they're calling them chemtrails, and, and this woman's all in on it. And so he has these commercials calling her, <laughs> like, Kim Chemtrails or something. Oh, my it's, heavens. It's, so it's, he's got his own problems down there in Arizona, but he's trying to hide from Trump because mm-hmm. he doesn't want to have that connected at all so he can win his election. This is, this is America. America. Land of the free. Home of the crazies. Usually, like, at this point, the sitting president after two, like, President Bush towards the end, nobody really wanted to talk right. with him, right? Yeah. But now it's like nobody wants to talk to who's running. I mean, yeah, now, now nobody wants to start talking to you. That's – but here's the thing we should not overlook. If Hillary Clinton did clinch it today, even though I think they're calling it way too early right. just because of – keep. I mean, it, it's he, close. We still have primaries. Yeah. And Bernie still won 45% of the vote. And right. Hillary still got a, you Many know, something hanging out of her. Over. Right. But she's the first female general election candidate ever. Yeah. Huge. Right. This is of a major party. So, yeah. so there's all these stories about her huge. breaking through the glass ceiling. Yeah. Apparently last night on Fox News, Donald Trump said, I actually have done more to help women break the glass ceiling than Hillary Clinton has. <laughs> he took credit for some of that. So. Yeah. Well, because he's good. He's well, good he, for women. He's hired women in his, his yeah. organization. Well, he's married a lot. He's married he's several women. Tens of thousands. He held pageants, right? <laughs> or he judged and oh, separated. Yeah. Folks, this is America. What are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? Well, let's at least stay informed. Okay. And then we'll we'll see. We'll figure it out. Um, we've got a great guest coming up and it's. It's uh, it's deep. I mean, it's a financial topic. But what is the key here? We just got a jobs report that looked pretty bad, right? So are we are we really, you know, out of a recession, or are we just pretending? Are we playing the numbers? Are we cooking the books? Well, our next guest, uh, Rana Faruhar, is going to be joining us. She's the author of the book Makers and Takers: The Rise of Finance and the Fall of American Business. She's assistant managing editor at Times and the magazine's economic columnist. Um, she's going to be talking to us about this idea of the, the way businesses are actually designed and, and generating their money. It's, it's not like old school business, you know, where you go make a dollar and you earn a dollar and then you pay a dollar out to people. Now it's you go borrow money from the financial sector. And then you pay them back as fast as you can. So the financial sector is booming. Wall Street, booming. The rest of the business, the trades, the the laborers, struggling. Interesting discussion. What's happening with American business? Up next, right here on the Matt Townsend Show.
Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, the presidential race has brought to light the country's frustration with current economic state. And while wages are up and the slow growth of the economy looks promising, many are still falling behind. Our guest today, Rana Faruhar, uh, author of Makers and Takers, The Rise of Finance and the Fall of American Business, joins us to tell us more about our nation's trends towards financialization and the damage that it has caused. Uh, Rana, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thank you so much for having me. Honored to have you. I think, oh, this topic is so needed. Where have you been, (laughs) Rana? Oh, I've been here. Seriously. Don't you think, I? this is what I've been talking about. I think this is why so many kind of just middle Americans are are so frustrated. Because everyone's getting rich except 80% of America. Well, that's right. I mean, you know, the reason I got interested in writing this book was I'm a business and financial journalist. And after the financial crisis... I watched as the markets were, you know, climbing to record highs and the rich seemed to be doing very well. You know, I live in New York City. I see a lot of very wealthy people around me all the time. But, you know, I grew up in rural Indiana. I spend a lot of time in middle America and I could just see that Main Street across the country was not feeling this recovery. And I wanted to understand why. And my research led me to this idea that basically the financial system itself has begun to choke off our growth and our prosperity. And that's it's, it's a very weird idea because actually, if you look back to the history of capitalism, the financial markets were set up to serve Main Street. Right. They're supposed to, they're supposed to take all of our savings in the form of bank deposits and lend it out to businesses, which then create jobs and growth and prosperity. But that's not happening. So the killer stat in my book, if you will, is that only about 15% of all the money uh, sloshing around America's financial financial institutions is actually being invested in Main Street business. What? And that's a big problem. Yeah, because they, then they don't have access to cash. They, and a lot of them don't have cash flow, but they go get the cash, but then they have to pay it back at such a big uh, cost that, that they themselves as business people aren't making anything. Right. I mean, it's it's a crazy thing because our financial system has become the tail that wags the dog. You know, the financial services are, are just that. They're services. They're set up to serve other businesses. Right. That was the idea. Um, and, and really, that's how the system worked up until about the 1980s, at which point the model began changing pretty radically. And it's interesting because since the 1980s, our growth, our trend growth as a nation has actually slowed. You know, I mean, we we are growing much more slowly than we were, say, in the 50s, 60s and 70s. And my book says that this is a big part of that. Hmm. You one of the things that's weird about your point um, is you need money, right, to make money. Yeah. But it seems like now what's happening is the whole goal is just to make the money lenders money. Well, that's it. I mean, you know, it's interesting because if you look at, again, what's happened since the 1980s, so the financial services industry has nearly uh, tripled in size over that period. And they've begun to take the majority of corporate profits. So if you look at the financial services industry, it creates only 4% of all American jobs. Mm -hmm. It takes 25% of all American corporate profits. Wow. That is a lot of economic oxygen that is being taken out of the room by one industry and is choking off the growth of other industries. Because 
And, and that's if I'm a business person, I need that more of that 25 percent to put back into research and development, to put back more into innovation, to hire more people. That's right. That's exactly right. And, you know, one of the other perverse effects of the rise of finance is that the markets have begun to control what business people do. So if you look at the pressure that the average CEO of a public company in America is under, you know, you 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 go out, um, you're trying to sell your story to Wall Street. If they don't like your story, if you're not jacking up profits and and your share price quarter after quarter, mm. you're out of there. You're going to get fired. I mean, the average tenure of a CEO in America today is three years. Um, and that's just not enough time for them to take the kinds of decisions, the long-term decisions they need um, to make the investments to really grow business for the future. Um, and another interesting thing is that, again, since finance began really taking off the 1980s, um, the behavior of all corporations in America has have changed. So businesses in all industries have now started to act like banks. They get more money from just moving money around, right. from hedging, from tax optimization, from trading than they did 40 years ago. So there's this sense that we should all act like bankers, and I think it's really undermining our economy. Yeah, we're just becoming a bunch of banks. Um, yeah. Which is funny, too, because uh, the too big to fail bank idea, which was, you know, the, the, co- the, the lack of control and oversight on the financial markets cost us so much. And yet mm-hmm. there, there's something, there's an underlying issue. What I hear you're saying, though, is everything they're doing is legal and, and I guess more or less ethical. Well, maybe not ethical, but legal. But, <laughs> but it's not necessarily good for the country or the businesses. Right. I'm laughing because it's funny. Yeah, much of it is legal. You can argue ethical. Exactly. <laughs> but, but, uh, but, but what's interesting is that, you know, many of the practices that have become very commonplace didn't used to be legal. So, you know, one of the things I talk about in my book is something called share buybacks. Now, this is when a company goes out into the public market and buys back their own stock. And this used to be illegal up until 1982. It was considered market manipulation. Well, this is now normal business. It's a practice that companies use to artificially jack up the share price of their stock when there's nothing really happening uh, in the underlying growth story. We have had two years, uh, 2015, 2016 have seen, and actually 2014 as well, have seen record numbers of share buybacks. So basically, companies are not creating real growth at Main Street level. They're creating artificial financialized growth. And what this does is it creates the kind of market bubble that we had back in 1999, back in 2007 in the run-up to the subprime crisis and the Great Recession. This is a really unhealthy thing for America because, of course, when those bubbles burst, we all suffer. You know, um, people, people, their portfolios go down, the value of their homes goes down, and it's a real issue. And by the way, as finance has gotten bigger, the number of financial crises um, has, has greatly increased. So we're dealing with this on a much, much more frequent basis than we used to in the past. Are a lot of the high uh, tech, uh, uh, the... I don't know. I don't want to name names, but are a lot of the high tech companies doing this because the ones that everyone talks about are so overinflated in value? Well, yeah. In fact, the lead chapter of my book talks a little bit about Apple, yeah. which um, it's interesting because so Apple is, you know, the one of the most loved, most prosperous, most successful companies in history. 
But it's interesting because you could argue, and I, I do argue, that they haven't really invented any groundbreaking new technology since Steve Jobs, the founder, passed away in 2011. Now, um, the current CEO, Tim Cook, pays a lot of attention to the balance sheet and to sort of financial manipulations. And so over the last few years, this company has handed back tens of billions of dollars to um, the biggest investors in the form of these share buybacks. And they, what's amazing is they have borrowed money to do it. Now, Apple has about $200 billion wow. worth of cash <laughs> sitting in bank accounts, many of them, by the way, overseas yeah. in, ta- in tax havens because they don't want to bring that money back and pay the fairly high U.S. corporate tax rate on it. So instead, they're borrowing money here at home, going into debt to pay back people like Carl Icahn. This is not money that's going into building new factories or enhancing R&D. This is going to make the top 10% of the population in America that owns 80% of the top stock richer. And to me, that's just a bizarre system. You've got tons of cash. You borrow cash. You hand it back to the wealthiest people in the country without creating any real underlying growth. And to me, the math just doesn't add up. Eventually, um, you know, that, that stymies your economic growth. You mean Donald Trump's Carl Icahn? Wow. Oh, my heavens. How weird. No, but I guess that's the point you're making is how how backwards this is for business. And and so if business is more worried about the Carl icons and and just, you know, the making the stock price stay up and look good, Mm -hmm. even if it's, you know, you know, overinflated um, versus jobs. No wonder our jobs market really is pretty dismal. I mean, I mean, I guess the numbers are supposedly okay, but it seems like there's a lot of people that are angry. Well, that's for sure. I mean, and last Friday's jobs numbers were actually a bit of a disappointment. Right. What's, what's interesting is that the whole nature of employment in the country has changed. I mean, you know this. We all feel this in our, in our home communities. Um, a lot of very high-quality jobs have gone elsewhere, uh, which is part of this process of financialization because uh, the markets want to send things wherever it's cheapest. Um, but that's not necessarily best for local economies. And I'm arguing that actually there are other models. You know, there are other countries that do this differently. In Germany, for example, you have a system where uh, business is still more in charge than the financial markets. And so you have businesses that will pay relatively high labor rates and keep jobs at home and really keep quality incredibly high, which then allows them to charge higher prices for goods. And that economy works, and it actually enriches local populations. And I'm arguing, particularly in my solutions chapter, that we need to get back to to that sort of a model. Oh, yeah. Man, you've got a lot of good arguments. We've got to take a break, Rana. We're speaking with Rana Faruhar, who is the author of the book Makers and Takers, The Rise of Finance and the Fall of American Business. She she speaks regularly on CNN as a global economic analyst. She also is um, the uh, assistant managing editor at Time and the magazine's economics columnist we're honored to have her we're going to take a break come back continue this discussion about the rise of finance and the fall of american business stick with us this is the matt townsend show Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, you 
you hear all of the frustration, you know, people fighting at a presidential event. And uh, Bernie Sanders screaming over and over about Wall Street, Wall Street, Wall Street. Well, uh, who better to to teach us all what's going on on Wall Street and uh, business than uh, Rana Faruhar. Rana is the author of the book Makers and Takers, The Rise of Finance and the Fall of American Business. She is the assistant managing editor at Time and the magazine's economics columnist. She... um, She's she's the real deal, for heaven's sake. She also appears regularly on CNN, and she at least, for once, has a clue. I don't have a clue, so I need you here to help us, Rana. I don't know. I think you sound like you've got a clue. I mean, I, you know, what's interesting is I think a lot of people, you know, living in the real world on Main Street uh, throughout America do have a clue. I mean, they recognize that something is profoundly wrong with the way our economy is working. Right. And, We've been sold a line in the last 40 years that the markets know best and that the markets are up, you know, everything's fine, we should all be happy, and that's just not the case. And, um, you know, you mentioned folks fighting at a Trump rally, Bernie Sanders, and I actually think that my my book goes a long way towards explaining both the Trump and the Sanders phenomenon, which to me are in some ways different sides of the same coin. It's about people being really disenchanted with establishment politics. Well, why are they disenchanted? Because they see decisions having been taken across both Republican and Democratic administrations over the last several decades that haven't helped Main Street but have helped Wall Street. Exactly. And we need to bridge that gap. I mean, we, the next president, whoever it is, has got to address this issue. Is Because the role of government is enormous. Um, you know, government was asleep at the watch and mm-hmm. and, and, and that, you know, caused a, a – a catastrophe economically, but it also seems like we're just setting ourselves up for it again. What what, what is well, the role of government in this? Well, this is so. This isn't a really interesting point. So, uh, you know, a lot of people have blamed bankers about the financial crisis and a lot of the bad behaviors that we've seen in the last few years, and certainly some of them deserve blame. But at the end of the day, Washington is the arbiter of what happens on Wall Street, right? I mean, politicians can regulate the markets. They can right. they can also, you know, not just use regulation, but they can craft um, checks and balances and incentives through the tax code that, that encourage institutions and people to do the right things rather than the wrong things. But one of the big problems, and I also look at this in my book, is that the financial power of Wall Street has become such that – uh, if you look at this election cycle, um, the top out of the top ten individual political donors, six of them are hedge funders. Wow! So you've got one industry. I mean, every year, big big finance basically jockeys with big pharma for who's going to be the single biggest industry donor to Washington. So you have a tremendous amount of financial capture of of what I call cognitive capture, where Wall Street has the it has the, the ear of politicians. You know, I mean, if you just look at how the Dodd-Frank financial regulation was crafted in the wake of 2008 in the financial crisis, over 90 percent of all the meetings about that regulation were taken with Wall Street bankers themselves. Wow. So, you know, if you wonder why things turned out the way they did, it's because Wall Street was the biggest voice in the room. And we really need to address that problem. One of the things I want to do with my book is – is say we need a much bigger group of stakeholders 
uh, in the arena talking about this. And, and it's funny, I'll just say one more thing, which is that the moment that I knew I needed to write this book was during an off-the-record conversation that I had with um, a former Obama administration official who was talking, uh, had had a role in the, the bailouts and in um, the, the, the sort of rebound from the financial crisis. And we were talking about uh, how regulation should be crafted. And I pointed out that one of the most contentious parts of regulation, something called the Volcker Rule, which was designed to separate risky trading from plain vanilla lending. It was a very important piece of regulation. But 93% of the meetings about that had been taken with Wall Street bankers. Oh, wow. And the, and the official looked at me, and he looked at me with a, with a truly confused look on his face and said, well, who else should we have been speaking to? And I just oh. thought, wow. <laughs> oh my gosh! Okay, unbelievable. I, I need to I need to write a book about this because if you don't know who you should be speaking, exactly, <laughs> we we got a problem here. Oh, see um, that's 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 again. The problem is too. Then we have I guess new business students graduating from business school. You know, going to New York, working with these firms, and this just keeps getting perpetuated and growing and growing. Why wouldn't you want to go make money? Well, that's it. And I actually have a chapter in my book on business education as well. And it's interesting because a lot of the CEOs that I speak to these days say, we can't find the right talent that we need from business schools. And I say, well, why is that? And they say, well, because business schools are basically teaching finance. They're not teaching business. They're teaching students how to move money around on a balance sheet. They're not teaching them how to really innovate and Mm. learn particular industries and, and think creatively. And, you know, it's a very old-fashioned way of thinking about how to run a business. It used to be that everybody was told, you know, marshal your capital, cut costs, guard your money at all costs. Right. The, the world, the world is awash in money right now. You know, I mean, there, there's actually the Federal Reserve Bank of America has put four trillion dollars into the economy since 2008. There's money sloshing around everywhere, but what's harder to find is real skill, real human talent, um, people that can think creatively, and so. Businesses need a totally different kind of leadership of executives, and business schools are still teaching finance finance 101, and they're not churning out the talent that we need to really create the next generation of business growth in this country. Yeah, BYU has the Marriott School here, and mm. it's a great top-notch uh, program, especially MBA program. But the mm. funny thing is finance is the hardest one to get into because everyone well, everyone wants to be a part of it. Well, right. And, you know, you can't blame these kids because so many of them will come out. Uh, I don't know what the cost of BYU is, but many around the country, many will come out with, with such um, debt and so many student loans that they, mm. you know, they have to go where the money is. Yeah, got to pay it off. is in finance. And that's, and that's what's really interesting. I think that, you know, getting back to that finance creates 4% of jobs but takes 25% of profits. We need to put that profit share a little more evenly around the, the, the rest of the different areas of business in this country. And, and so you really see it's it's not just a government issue or just a big business or a Wall Street issue. Also, Main Street business, uh, we're, we're not necessarily just exercising good old-fashioned business skills. It's all money movement. Well, a lot of industries, and you know, I think that the bigger companies do more of this. I think small and mid-sized companies do still tend to be a little more grassroots, a little more focused on their knitting. Um, but if you look from the 80s until now, um, across all industries in America, businesses are getting about five times as much revenue as they did in 1980 from just moving money around. Wow. 
So this puts us, and the other thing I, I think is very important, this puts us at a real disadvantage on the international landscape because a lot of the new companies coming up from the emerging markets, from China, from India, they're run by, um, by families or they're run by the state, and they can take a much longer-term view. They can think out over 20 years, 30 years, 50 years, whereas American businesses are under so much pressure to just think for the quarter. Now, the one exception, and this is a very interesting exception, it's almost the exception that proves the rule, is family businesses in America. If you look at private businesses, and in particular family-owned businesses, they invest about twice as much on Main Street as public competitors do. And what that tells me is they're able to do that. They see opportunities in their communities and they are able to make those investments because they don't have Wall Street pressure on them. And I think that's a really interesting contrast. Hmm. Like crowd, like what about crowdfunding? What about some of these companies that are coming up through, I mean, you can crowdfund, I guess it's called crowdfunding, your funeral now or your wedding. And I mean, it's, it's still, everyone's still looking for money, but I guess money with different ties, money's money with different yeah. commitments. Yeah, that's true. Well, you know, crowdsourcing falls under this area uh, of finance called fintech. It's the combination of finance and technology. And I think this is a really interesting area to watch. I think there's going to be a lot of innovation here. Um, You're seeing companies that are really coming in and and saying, yes, small and mid-sized businesses and individuals need capital. Let's find some innovative new ways to provide it. And you know, there's going to be there's going to be some that will succeed. There's going to be some that will fail and be problematic. But I think it's great that there's a whole new area that is challenging the established um, business model in banking. Right. We definitely need something different. But I guess what will still happen is, you know, if you have business savvy and sense, you grow your business, you get it big enough, then you do an IPO, and then Wall Street comes in. And then they just well, right. take over. That's right. And there's this wonderful Stanford study that I quote in my book that if you look at um, big tech companies before they go public and after they go public, innovation in those companies after they go public falls off by about 40 uh. percent because they they can't make those investments in R&D anymore. They have to start paying back the shareholders, like I was saying before. Yes, the death of the company. Um, that sounds really <laughs> sure. bad, Rana. It does. I've got some. I have a solutions chapter, though. Okay, what? Well, give us some different. solutions. What and and what can we do? Yeah. Well, so uh, one solution. I'll I'll say first um, one practical solution. There's so much we could do with the tax code. I mean, we have a tax code in this country that subsidizes debt and encourages debt over equity and savings and investment. And that's at both the consumer level and at the corporate level. So it's the reason why people are able to buy more house than they really need and write it off their taxes. It's Mm. the reason that companies are able to take on lots of debt that then blows up and tanks the company and people lose their jobs. So we could do a lot to change the tax code and say, let's reward savers and investors instead of debtors. So that's point number one. Um, Point number two, though, is that All of us with our retirement portfolios um, could think more smartly. I have a whole chapter on how the asset management part of the financial industry takes so much in fees. Um, These actively managed mutual funds, they almost never beat the market. Everybody should just put their money in a no-fee index fund and forget about it until it's time to retire. Yeah, Um, yeah. Because you just don't need to be paying those fees. Um, uh, there's been some really great academic research that shows as much as 60% of your nest egg can be eaten up by those fees if you're not careful. So put in put in an index fund, forget about it. Walk away. 
walk away. Don't check your portfolio every every day. Yeah. <laughs> what what should we do, uh, Rana, as an average just voter and somebody yeah. that because it does feel like we're very we're we're uninformed or misinformed. Well, yes, and I think that it's almost like we need to have a narrative shift. We need to change the story around and say. Finance is not the kind of tippy-top of the economic pyramid that we should all be aspiring to. Financial services need to be serving real business, and we need to start to understand that. And frankly, we need to vote in politicians that that say that. Mm -hmm. Um, And one of the things I've been a little disappointed by in this election cycle is I have not heard any of the candidates say really clearly the financial markets need to support Main Street, and here's how we're going to make that happen. And I think we need to really keep pushing um, as Americans for, for that message. Well, I bet you'll find that message deeply embedded in Hillary's emails somewhere and somewhere <laughs> sure. atop the wall of uh, Donald Trump. <laughs> well, or in I'll the 1% try, of Bernie Sanders. Up there and keep looking, yeah. <laughs> well, Rana, you're, you're awesome. Keep up the great work. And everybody, uh, go check out this book, Makers and Takers, The Rise of Finance, The Fall of American Business by Rana Faruhar. Thanks again, Rana. Thank you so much. You bet. Interesting. We got to get on it, folks. We got to get our companies back. I'm a businessman. It's hard. It's hard. And I get it. But if all you're doing is making money to pay your money lenders, that's not the business model you need. You got to figure out a way to really trickle it down. (laughs) Trickle down. Ronald Reagan said it, right? Anyway, we'll take a break. Come back. Do a little coach's corner. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. Helping you see the good in the world. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Welcome back, friends. Welcome to my house. Hey, um, love that interview because I. this is part of the problem. That is some of the anger, the frustration you see in middle America and it seems like the middle America kind of blue-collar worker might be a little more pro-Trump, I guess. Who knows exactly. But uh, the younger America, pro-Bernie, some are frustrated seeing a politician uh, or politicians like the Clintons be worth hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, just seems weird. That's uh, this is based on what Rana was teaching us. Maybe this is why so many people want to see Hillary Clinton's uh, transcripts, right? To what she said to these organizations that are taking 25 percent of the money of our economy and maybe the same reason why they want to see what Donald's been doing on his taxes. People are mad. (sighs) And we've got to somehow take our country back when it comes to our our businesses, our economy. We are so into, you know, eat, drink, and be merry. Just fatten yourself up, and tomorrow will be fine. But uh, it doesn't doesn't seem like that. It seems like we might be setting ourselves up for another fall. When a tiny percentage of Americans have enough savings to cover their bills for three months – when like 5% maybe, 10% of America could cover their 
three months of bills if, if they stopped working today. That's scary. If everyone else is living paycheck to paycheck, we need some tough love. And the problem is we keep looking to leaders to do it. And I think the we might be giving our leadership way too much um, – what's the word? Respect? <laughs> we might be thinking that our, our Congress people are going to solve some of this stuff. And they obviously can't, especially if the legislation is being written by – the companies and the organizations that are um, that are benefiting. So this is our deal. This is our issue. And what I would love to have happen, we need a little tough love. Okay. So, there, so there's a story I found on CNN about a dad who sells his disrespectful son's SUV on Craigslist. Okay. He's just had it. He's fed up with his son smoking weed and acting all thug-like, a Florida dad uh, said. He, so he sold his teen's SUV on Craigslist. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. And he agreed to take $250 off the price if the buyer lived in the area just so his son would see the vehicle every now and then to remind him of how good he had it. Now, is that just a petty dad? No, no, it's not. It's a smart dad. I'd take 500 off if you could get a neighbor to buy it and let the son see that you can't treat people like that. He wrote on Craigslist, I have my son's truck up for sale that I bought for him as his first car. He thinks it's cool to drive around with his friends smoking dope and acting all thug, especially not showing me and my wife the respect we deserve. This was a vehicle to finish school in, get a decent job and get a head start in life, but chose to throw it all away because his friends would rather have an influence on him than me. They'd rather have his friends have an influence on him more than I do. Now he can't uh, put those Jordans to use. Now now he can put the Jordans to use and walk, um, you know. They're a little swear word there. Uh, walk his blank off on the way to school. The truck's nice. It has ice cold air, power, everything. It's it's dirty inside, but you know, with somebody with a little pride and respect can clean that right up. So it's on sale. And maybe that's what we need is somebody to come in and just whip us and just take us out and say, I mean, do we need another economic collapse? Or can you do something about it? Just ask yourself, what can you do about it? If your answer is nothing, then we got to rethink, right? And keep listening. We'll find ways. One way is to stay informed. Another way is to vote. And if you're frustrated with voting on the national level, vote on the local level. Look at your Congress people. They're having a huge impact on your life. We'll take a break. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here. Top of the morning to you. Man, we got a great show. We uh, I was riled up. That riled me up, that last segment. Our country's in trouble. we got to be careful, folks. Uh, today is June 7th, VCR Day. Well, if you know what one of those are. 
those are the greatest thing. I remember going to a rental store to buy my videos as a kid on my bike. It was great. We used to go to the grocery store. Yeah. They remember? Had the, they had the VCRs and they also had Nintendo games. Uh-huh. That and then, the, then if you were rich, you went to like Blockbuster. That was later. Yeah. I even remember those days. Right before the crash of Blockbuster. Even, hold on. We, we just talked about something that Ben remembers. I know. That's weird. It's totally weird. Did you go to Blockbuster? Yeah. As a, yeah. what, a two-year-old? No, as like an 11-year-old. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Weren't they basically dead by then? No, that was no? like 12. Okay. Don't you remember? You'd be, you'd, you'd just look through all these videos, and then the one you wanted was rented. Always. There was like always eight of them, and they always had like a big X or something on the box. Sorry, rented, 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 rented. And you're like, Duh. ugh. I always liked the VCR smell. Like it had a distinct smell in Blockbuster. Oh. Was it like burning tape because you're rewinding all the time? No, or? no. It's like how the store smelled. Like it's it's almost like a plasticky smell. Yeah, I don't uh, remember that. Hmm. Huh. Okay. Well. I think he. I think he's thinking of something else. Could be. Could you, be. You guys probably just re- don't remember. You're a little bit. Yeah, we probably weren't paying attention. Like yeah. you were. It's also Chocolate Ice Cream Day. Ben's <laughs> favorite day. Um. Actually, the whole month of July is my favorite set of days. Really? Why is that? National Ice Cream Month. For those that don't know, uh, Ben is an ice creamateer. Yes. At least that's what he says. Mm-hmm. We've seen very little proof of this. He's certified in uh, a bathtub ice cream making. I know some ice cream recessative techniques. Recessative. Recessitative. Yes. In case somebody like goes down. Yeah. And Diabetic needs. shock. And so you know how to like you know how to stick a ice cream pen in their leg and. Yeah. Inject. Yuck. That's gross. Cream. Chocolate uh, ice cream day. And, um, you know, we got a lot more coming down for you. We're going to be doing headlines and uh, a topic I kind of near and dear to my heart um, about foster care families. They're needed, folks. There is a foster care crisis. 400,000 kids across the country need help. They need a healthy, safe place to live and to um, to have some Parental support, um, they need you. And foster care kids are not – it's not going to be easier. We've got to start dealing with our issues. So Mike Hamblin will be joining us. He is the director of recruitment at Utah Foster Care Foundation to come and talk to us about foster care parenting, what's going on, not just here in Utah, but uh, nationwide, and and what – what really is needed to be a foster care parent if you think you have it in your heart? Um, Listen up because I think – Heaven knows there's a lot of kids that need help right now. We are going to get to that in a few minutes. But first, let's get to the headlines, find out what's going on around the rest of the country. Terry, what's up? Thanks, Matt. Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina, former primary rival of Mr. Trump, urged Republicans who have backed Mr. Trump to rescind their endorsement, citing their remarks about Judge Carell and Mr. Trump's expression or about doubt of on Sunday about a if a Muslim judge could remain neutral in the same lawsuit given Mr. Trump's proposed temporary ban on Muslim non-citizens entering the country. This is the most un-American thing from a politician since Joe McCarthy, Mr. Graham says. If anyone was looking for an off-ramp, this is probably it. He added, there will come a time when the love of country will trump hatred of Hillary. True. The best he, he's saying the best thing for Republicans may be Hillary Clinton. Well, let me ask you: Does a does a Protestant Caucasian male, yes, wasp, 
A wasp, yes. Is he incapable of being unbiased in a case? I don't know. Is there a, uh, a well, temporary ac- ban well, proposed accor- on there? Well, according to Donald Trump, if you have any difference in you, yes. you're not capable of being If you're biased. against him, you're... <sighs> Not worthy. President Obama reportedly can't hardly wait to get back to the campaign trail. After months of staying mum on the presidential election, Obama is now in active conversations with Hillary Clinton's campaign about how he can help her ca- help her cause. Uh, this from the New York Times. And Obama's communications director told the uh, paper that the president has indicated he wants to spend a lot of time on the campaign trail. The task Obama is most looking forward to? going after Donald Trump. Clinton's Mm. communications director is convinced that Obama is going to be just the guy their campaign needs to draw the line between Clinton and Trump. Yeah. He spent 35 to 40 minutes, President Obama did, talking with Bernie Sanders the other day. That was nice. No word on the kind of character, kind of the the feeling from it, from the conversation or what was talked about, but the conversation. But they were hanging out. At one point, what everyone wants to know is, did the president tell him to get out? Get out of the election. You're, you're in the way. I doubt he did. No. To the surprise of no one, House Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi endorsed Hillary Clinton this morning. Wow. Pelosi said it would be fabulous to have two women on the Democratic ticket when asked about Senator Elizabeth Warren as a potential vice presidential choice. But she was actually referring to herself. No. She's not in the running. Okay. It would be fabulous, she said. Well, it's interesting she took so long. <clears throat> Well, she's waited till today because California's voting, right? right? So it's right. it's advantageous for her. Sure. She's a politician. Mm-hmm. Hamilton County Prosecutor Joe Dieters announced Monday that the family of the child who fell into the gorilla habitat at the Cincinnati Zoo last month, resulting in the killing of an endangered gorilla to protect the boy, will not face criminal charges. Dieters defended the child's mother against criticism that she had been inattentive in caring for her child. Our information is that the mother turned away for a few seconds to attend to another one of her young children, he said. Any parent who was honest with himself or herself would have to understand how this could have happened to even the most attentive of parents. Right. The Cincinnati Zoo will also not face charges, as Dieter said the zoo did the right thing when they took immediate action to save the life of the young child. Don't second guess. Come on. Come uh, on. You like cereal? Love it. You eat mm. breakfast occasionally? No, just toast. We're going to talk about breakfast later on in the 9 o'clock hour with Ron Hager as he yep. tells us about breakfast. Uh, this is attention to fellow cereal lovers. There's soon to be going to be a new cereal on the market. General Mills, the creator of breakfast staples like Cheerios and Cinnamon Toast Crunch, announced Monday that after 15 years without a new offering, it will release a fresh product for America's breakfast bowls. Wow. They're calling it Tiny Toast. Ooh. While this isn't General Mills' first foray into the toast-shaped cereal, you have French Toast Crunch and Cinnamon Toast Crunch and just stuff. Lots of toast. Lots of toast crunches. This cereal is aimed to, uh, to the state America's newfound taste for healthier foods. Tiny Toast, which will come in both blueberry and strawberry varieties, is free of high fructose corn syrup and artificial flavors and colors. A healthy option. I'm out at that point. Yeah. It's w- gonna what ta- good is that? It's going to taste like wheat. I'll just have What's to drink that? my corn syrup. People told us that both varieties taste real, not fake, like they they typically associate with fruit-flavored cereals, General Mills product hmm. developer says. Tiny Toast hits the shelves later this month. What's fake about frost – what's it called? Fruit Loops. Right. Are, Are you they, kidding I, me? For me, it's implied that it's fake. 
So when you start trying to make it real, you're ruining cereal. A talking to can that gives you frost or what are they called? Fruit Loops. Yeah. When you have a toucan as a spokesperson, uh-huh. like you assume it's it's natural. Totally. And his beak? Mm. Fruity colors or tree flavors. Or Trix has a magic rabbit that runs right. around. And Trix are for kids. Lucky Charms, there's what? Your favorite character of all time. <laughs> magic. You, you quote him every day. Top of the morning. That's not that's not the little leprechaun. It's lucky. Man. Yeah. No, it is. See, and those marshmallows, they're not even marshmallows. He doesn't say top of the morning to It's like you. foam packaging that they just toss in the box. It's sugar. sugar makes foam. it all work. Sugar foam. Who doesn't want just a box of those? Mm. Mm. I was always a fan of uh, the Cinnamon Toast Crunch. Yeah, I like that. Oh, no, no. It was Waffle Crisp because uh-huh. it had syrup on it. Ooh. And so the milk afterwards... Was the taste? It had like like a, a yeah. syrup. Play. It really was really good. It sounds fantastic. Yeah, and I, I ate of quite a bit of that. I I don't like Captain Crunch because mm-hmm. it shreds my mouth. Right. Know what I mean? Yeah. I hate it when my gums are bleeding after breakfast. It just ruins the morning. I'm saying, just saying. Hey, did you hear about this guy, alligator? Look out, everybody! Alligator alert! Alligator alert! An alligator bites off the arm of a Florida man fleeing police. Ooh. In the Coaching a Con segment of the show today, we're going to uh, – I want to give just a little feedback. If you are going to run away from cops, make sure you don't run right into an alligator. A Florida man was hospitalized after an alligator chomped off his hand and forearm as he sought to elude authorities by running into a lake. Police said Jesse Kingsinger, 21, was missing three quarters of his left arm when he crawled out of the Lakeland Police Department or crawled out of the lake in the wooded area behind the apartment complex, according to Lakeland Police. Man, terrifying. He apparently ran into the water as authorities searched for him after his mother asked for help getting him to a medical facility for psychiatric evaluation. Sad. This kid. Runs in, I mean, ah, runs right into it, doesn't he? And his, uh, he's now getting help in a medical facility. Kingsinger was hospitalized for treatment and um, his unspecified psychiatric issue. All of a sudden, you're just running away and eluding police, and you run right into the jaws of a gator. The staff and management of BYU Radio do not condone the housing and boarding of alligators or any other illegally acquired reptiles in any private domicile. I totally agree. And if that was, if that story wasn't in Florida, <laughs> then uh, we'd be there'd be a whole different story. Sad day. Uh, think about this one, Finland. I, we've got to talk about this. Actually, let's save Finland for our next guest because he's going to hate that. Uh, here's a crazy one: a wife battered a husband over candy and her flowers. The wife he brought the wrong flowers. <laughs> he brought the wrong candy. This is why you don't buy candy and no. flowers for the missus. No. Well, not necessarily. Uh, I know I know what kind she wants. Okay, so the wife was mad because the husband bought the wrong flowers and candy for Mother's Day, and she allegedly pummeled her spouse, according to cops, who arrested her for domestic battery. Investigators allege that Virginia Stewart, 42, attacked her spouse during an argument early Sunday in their family's Holmes, uh, Holmes Beach residence. Cops arrived at the house in response to a 9-11 hang-up call. 
See, honey, relax. But it, the story doesn't go into detail as to what he bought her and what she wanted. I wanted a Snickers! Whack! Because I think that would just uh, that may ju- justify the situation given what candy he chose. I told you I hate carnations. If They're was, cheap. Because maybe he got her, like, seasonal candy corn. <laughs> I could see he her getting that. Seasonal October's candy corn. Well, no, no, no. They change it. They change yeah. the color. So yeah. you have, like, spring colors. No. For, you know, no. No. Right. no. The victim, uh, you know, that the victim was mad. Okay, they threw cups around the room. It was ugly. Stewart's husband suffered bruising and contusions. No to the cops. What do you do? What are the wrong flowers? I guess people have right flowers. And if you, if you love me, you would know what flowers I want. One time I tried to bring my give my mom flowers for Mother's Day. Yeah. Turned out they were, it was poison ivy. Well, that was... Yeah, that's a wrong flower. And, yep. I mean, I guess it's not it's even a dumb. flower. It's not. Yeah. And it's and that wasn't even your mom. <laughs> yeah, that <laughs> was really weird. It's just some lady. Yeah. Um, <laughs> spent a couple nights in jail for that. Mm. You know what? Good. But you grew from it. Um, Did you learn your lesson? No, I, I think... No, I didn't grow from that. Didn't. That was that was pretty painful. I guess there, are, guys, there are wrong flowers, and there are right flowers, and there's wrong candy, and there's right candy. My tip is ask. Yeah, don't try to be. No, you can't ask because no, you ask, be spontaneous. You should know. You could ask, like first, like beginnings of the relationship. You try mm-hmm. to figure all this stuff out so that later on, yes, 10, exactly. 15 years down the road. You're so thoughtful because you remember these Here's things. the idea. If you gave your wife, let's say, a candy 10 years ago, hmm. and the minute she ate it, her face swelled up and her throat constricted and she almost died. Right. Out of joy or? Don't buy that. Probably out of allergic reaction. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah. Because that's happened, but I just assumed it was. Out she of may need an epi an epipen yeah. yeah. on the same day. If your wife has an epipen hanging from her neck, <laughs> be careful what what kind of candy you give her, and flowers. Yeah, it just makes you wonder why we try any of this. Why do we try? I don't know. See, I asked my wife, "What do you want for Mother's Day?" Mm-hmm. She was, "I'd like some flowers." Okay, so I had flowers delivered. Really? To her office. Then she calls me and tells me these are beautiful. Thank you. Wow. And there, we're done. Was you always? I thought you told me you always do that right after I Memorial Day. What do you mean? You get some flowers off a gravesite. No, no. And have them delivered to your wife. What I try to do is I have them delivered like some Mother's Day was on a weekend. I have them delivered on like Thursday. Ah, so you get bonus points. They're there for a couple days. Yeah. Other people are like, oh, your, your husband's husband so thoughtful. You. What a wonderful guy. Then so she comes is, home. Yeah. This is really about you, not about oh, Sure, of course. <laughs> it has nothing to do with her. <laughs> That's good to learn. She comes home. She's happy. I'm happy. Everyone's great. Everyone's happy. She feels like she got something. That's et cetera. Am- well, you're, at least you're coming clean. That's she half knows. the battle. So, and she likes that. That's the right. That's those are the right flowers. My wife's not into flowers. I don't get her flowers because mm. it's kind of a waste. Yeah, but I kind of thought that too. I did buy her hundred and fifty dollars worth of bark the other day. Cho- our, the, the chocolate bark? No, no bark that we put in our yard. Oh, well, landscaping. What are you going to do? And her eyes just lit up. Nothing she's says like, love like oh, landscaping. You're hot. 
That bark's to die for. And that's just because you're all sweaty putting it underneath oh, all your yeah. bushes and she's trees. She's like, flex, Matt, flex. And I'm flexing. And she's like, seriously, flex. Did you do anything yet? I can't see. <laughs> Did you move your arm? What's going on? Oh, honey, when the sun hits you just right, you almost look like you have a muscle in your shoulder. Yeah, thanks, babe. Hey, good stuff, folks. We'll take a break. Uh, be careful. Be careful what uh, where you run from cops and also be careful where you uh, what you buy your spouse for Mother's Day. Lessons learned on the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back talking foster care families. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. And today, I, as promised, I, I'm trying to help us find the good in the world. And one of the things I have found just in my own professional career that is, I think, under misunderstood and, and underestimated in their value would be the foster care programs around the country. And so I've asked uh, Mike Hamblin to join us. Mike is the Director of Recruitment at Utah Foster Care Foundation. Utah Foster Care is a private nonprofit with a contract with the state of Utah to do all of the recruitment training uh, and training for state-licensed foster care families prior to working at Utah Foster Care um, Uh, Mike worked with the Utah Division of Child and Family Services and was a caseworker and then Child Protective Services investigator. He has a master's degree in social work with emphasis in child welfare. Mike, welcome to the show. Thanks, man. It's great to be here. I haven't seen you forever. Mike and I I used to do work and teach my own marriage classes at the same facility where Mike is, and we'd see each other, hang out, go to events. But good to see you. You're still working. Yep. Still still have a job. It's great. You still have a job. Okay. Foster care. Now, give us the overview because some people don't know what foster care is and um, and yet – it's it's happening in probably most of our neighborhoods. We're seeing some somebody helping, serving, doing something. Yeah, and it's it's not uncommon to have the situation out there that you're just not aware of. That, so generally, what happens is that when there's when there's concerns of abuse or neglect that come up, a call goes in to the state agency. Um, to the, in Utah, it's the Division of Child and Family Services, and it's known by different names around the nation. And uh, and from there, based on what the allegations are, what the concerns are, they'll send out someone to do an investigation. And really, the initial role is to identify, is there really abuse going on in the home? Is there neglect? Is there a reason to be concerned for the child? And then the, the next step to that process is then determining, okay, if there has been abuse or neglect, what needs to happen to remedy that? And quite often, they can put services in place with the child staying in the home and just help the parents out to, to get right. the help that they need. But in certain circumstances, when it's when it's deemed uh, too dangerous uh, a situation for the child to remain for their own safety in that home, then it becomes necessary for the child to be removed from the parents. Uh, the goal is to have that be temporary while the state works with the parents, tries to resolve those issues, and then have the child return back to the family that they were removed from. Mm. It, and it's... I mean, imagine you're a 10-year-old girl or a 10-year-old boy and you're living in an unsafe place anyway. It's whatever, maybe drugs, maybe just whatever. It could be anything, crime or anything, um, or just abuse or whatever, what have you. Then all of a sudden you're removed from that situation and put into many times a different situation completely – opposite of what you're used to. Right. And that's one of the things that has to be balanced through this whole equation is the concept of, you know, it's it's 
it's not good for a child to be in an abusive or neglectful situation, but um, does it outweigh the trauma of having a child removed from that situation right. and put somewhere completely different? Because the reality, like you said, you know, the children are in this abusive, they're in this neglectful situation, there may be drugs, there may be some physical violence, domestic violence. But the other piece of the reality is, is that's what they've always known. To them, that's normal. Right. And so, um, it, you know, most of us would look at that and say, holy cow, look what they're going through. And for them, it, that's just Monday. You know, that's yeah. Tuesday. And so, yeah, yeah this is a normal day. So, so it's not quite, I mean, it, it is. It's, a, it's, a, it's quite a balancing act to determine which trauma is, is more effective. 415,129 children were in foster care in 2014. Yeah, and that's actually a lower number. The state, the, the, all of the states have, have really focused efforts recently on trying to reduce the numbers of kids in foster care, whether that's working to get kids home more quickly or moving them through the f- system to adoption if they're not able to go home. So some of these kids get to a point where they're, they go with their foster care parents and I guess eventually uh, their, their, their birth parents aren't able to get together, get their act together, get them back, bring them back so then they can be adopted by a foster care family. Right, right. And this is this is actually – it's kind of interesting. So I started in, in child welfare at, at the state a little over 20 years ago. And at that time, the average length of stay for a child in foster care here in Utah was about three and a half years. Wow. Uh, depending on the circumstances, you know, three and a half to four years. And, and uh, in 1997 uh, – the U.S. passed the Adoption and Safe Families Act, which they they noticed that this was you know this was a negative thing for kids to just hang out in foster care. And the reality was, when a child was in foster care, we knew that they were safe. They were mm. with a foster parent. We knew that the abuse or neglect wasn't happening. So the focus was really on keeping families together and getting kids back to their parents. But it was based on the parents' timeline. And so if the parents weren't making any progress, there was no – I mean there was really no stick to get them to move along yeah. or no carrot. And yeah. So they would just kind of hang out knowing they could, they could get their kids back at any time. And so in 97, the federal government passed this uh, Adoption and Safe Families Act, which basically said that um, anytime a child's been in foster care for 15 of the last 22 months – then it's time for the state to move forward. And so they made it a little bit more easy oh, wow. to terminate the parental rights. And they just kind of said, it's not good for kids to hang out in foster care. They need yeah. some permanency, yeah. whether it's going home or going on to be adopted. And so um, and, and so every state, in order to receive federal funding, had to adopt something that would be in meeting with that. Here in Utah, basically what they determined was that uh, parents have 12 months to get their kids back and to work through their issues. And if wow. they can't do it within that 12-month period, then it's time to start looking at, a, at another long-term permanent home for the children. Are the parents able to visit with the child during foster care? Uh, yeah, yes, certainly. Yeah. And, it, and it really depends on what the circumstances are and what the risks are to the child. But yeah. initially, those visits begin supervised and then they'll move to unsupervised before the kids go home. A lot of times they'll have some some overnight weekend visits hmm. while they're transitioning kids to go back home. And, and really, I mean, in, in Utah, theoretically, um, for most kids, it's at, at least once a week, for at least an hour a week. And for the really young kids, they try to do it more often than that. If you imagine the bonding that takes yeah. place with an infant, you oh. know, once a week for an hour doesn't do a whole no. lot for them. And so they'll no. try to do it more frequently than that. It seems like it's also just having done some work with your foster care parents. It's a, it's a difficult thing because you bond with these kids. A lot of times you, you fall in love with them and then you give them back. That's hard. Yeah. And um, – or sometimes you don't quite bond the way you thought you would, and it's it's harder because some of these kids are struggling because of their history. So, I mean, what's, what is it like? Explain just kind of who comes in and decides, hey, I'm going to be a foster parent, 
and and how do they make that decision? Yeah, it's a, it's really a challenge either way, like you describe. And and it's interesting to see talking to foster parents. They'll say, you know, what? we always cry when they go home. Sometimes we, you know, cry sometimes with cry with joy. Sometimes, yeah. and and uh, and they do um, get to love the children, even the ones that that can be a little bit more difficult. Yeah. Um, so usually, what we see as far as foster parents, we see a lot of families that feel like. Um, they've had it. They've got. They've got it good. You know. They've been really blessed in this life. They to have a good job. To not have a lot of serious issues in their family, and so they feel like they want to give back to the community and help out kids hmm. that don't that don't have it that good. Uh, we also see families that are looking at to potentially add to their to their family through adoption. You know, whether for whatever reason they're yeah. unable to have children themselves, or their children are grown and they feel. Like, in fact, I've talked to some families that say, you know, we're able to have children, but we feel like there's enough children in this world that need parents, that we don't need to bring more children into the world. So we, we can take care of the ones that are here. And mm-hmm. so we kind of see a combination of those. And in Utah alone, there were more than 600 children adopted from foster care last year. And so it's not amazing. Yeah, it's not uncommon. And there's more children that would, would have been available or are available to have been adopted that are waiting for families. Are they usually then adopted by the foster family, foster care family? Yeah, most, most children adopted from foster care are adopted from the family. And, and a part of that is... Um, you know, speaking of the trauma of having a child go into foster care, we also know that it's traumatic every time they have to move. So if you're yeah. with a family and then it's like, okay, in fact, it, years ago, we separated it out and we had foster families and adoptive families mm-hmm. and, you know, they never crossed paths. And so a child would go into foster care, stay in foster care. If they were going to be adopted, they would be, even if the family wanted to adopt them, they would be moved to an adoptive family. And now since we recognize the trauma involved in moving kids, yeah. Um, we really focus on families that are are willing and able to do both. To be, a, we call it a resource family. You know, be hmm. a resource for the child, whether that's temporary for however long that is, or whether that becomes permanent. And especially, uh, the focus has become, especially for younger children, you know, under the age of five or six, the focus really is on just finding foster families that are also open to adoption, so that hopefully they never have to move. Yeah. And with the older kids, it's a little bit more common to have families that that just foster and then other families that adopt. Wow, it really it's so needed. And I and I I just think I don't know, having trained a bunch of them too, it's there's so much love that they have and these parents I mean, they get compensated, right? A foster care parent is compensated by the state to cover the costs for I mean, but it's not like yeah, in theory, you're not it making covers an income. living costs. It's food, shelter, clothing, basically. Right. Yeah. It's we joke that it's uh, it starts at a little over fifteen dollars a day and you know we kinda of joke if you wanted to kennel your dog you'd be paying twenty. So <laughs> You know, you get yeah, you get less than what. So it's an act of love, not right, right. And so that fifteen dollars a day covers, you know, any clothing. There's a certain clothing allowance. A certain amount supposed to be spent on clothing each month, and so, you know, food activities. And we, as a private nonprofit, we're able to take in donations from uh, individuals who are willing to. Uh, help and support foster families. And so we we have what we call a wishing well fund mm-hmm. where families can come to us and request some assistance to purchase, you know, something like bikes for kids or um, if they need additional uh, additional items for whatever we've paid for music lessons. I mean, all of those kinds of things, all those enrichment type activities to try and normalize life for kids oh. that it, without support, um, the foster parents would need to come up with the funding for themselves. It's so... It's so important. And I mean, fundraising. So if, if you want to, you can go to utahfostercare.org and, and just look at what they do and understand that this is just for Utah. 
Um, but there are other every every state would have some organization, right? Yeah, every state has organizations that are similar that are doing you know that same recruitment or providing yeah. some support one way or the other. Well, let's take a break. Come back. Continue the discussion about foster care and and the need, folks. Four hundred thousand kids need help every year in the foster care world. Mike Hamblin is joining us. He'll come back and we'll continue to discuss foster care families and uh, what you can do about it. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you see the good in the world. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Um, I'm today talking with Mike Hamblin, who is the Director of Recruitment at Utah Foster Care Foundation, which is a private uh, nonprofit organization that's contracted with the state of Utah to take care of foster care recruitment and, and training and, and taking and just managing the program. Every state has their own foster care type of program, and um, I'm, uh, the reason I wanted to talk about it is we we hear story after story about all of these kids that uh, you know are getting in trouble. They don't have the support at home that they need, and um, there are answers out there, folks. But they also they need your help too. So if you're a parent, um, if you if you've ever thought of adopting a child or just interested in understanding the foster care program, as a foster care parent, you don't necessarily adopt the child, you first are just a foster parent. You provide a space for them to be safe and grow. Right. And then then once you once they're growing and healthy and things are working, you could maybe in time move to to uh, adopt if the child doesn't look like he's going back to his parents. Right. It just depends on the, that particular child situation and, and what's going on with that child. And it's kind of, it's interesting. There's a lot of misconceptions about kids in foster yeah, care, how they those. get there, you know, what their situations are. And and the reality is, is that kids are in foster care, not because of anything that they've done, but because of abuse or neglect they've experienced. Yeah. Now, unfortunately, you know, we talk about the role of the environment in our development. Unfortunately, based on that abuse or neglect, uh, it's not uncommon for them to develop some behaviors which really were appropriate and and were meant to protect themselves from right, that environment. Right. You know, if we've got kids that uh, you know that didn't have food in the home, and you find out that they're that they're stealing food from Seven Eleven on the corner, well, you know, okay, that's a negative behavior. But the reality is, is they survive. They needed something. They need to survive. Sure. And and those are the kids that then when they get into foster care, you know, they're in the home and and they're there's food there now. But but they're not sure they can rely on that. They haven't been in that environment. And so it's not uncommon to find kids who are maybe hoarding some food or they're not sure their their yeah. situation. I, yeah. I um, remember – I'll never forget a little boy that uh, that went into a home and it's – um, it's kind of an interesting story that he, uh, the the family's home that he moved into is about four years old. The family's home that he moved into, they began renovating their kitchen not long after he got there, and so they had this pantry in the kitchen, and they took the door off it while they're putting a new floor in. And uh, the foster mom told me he couldn't walk through the room without stopping in front of that pantry and looking at all the food. And once she, he was playing outside, and he needed to go to the bathroom, and he came running in, and he still had to stop in front of the door and kind of dance a little jig before he took off down the hall to the restroom. Oh, but it was just he just couldn't understand. Yeah. She said that, you know, when he first arrived, she was making him a sandwich or, you know, some SpaghettiOs every two hours. He wanted something to eat. 
And oh as heavens. time progressed, and, mm-hmm. and you know, part of it was just making sure, yep, food's still available. As time progressed, it got to the point where he asked with the same frequency, but she'd make a sandwich and he'd take two bites and then he'd be done with it. And at first she was frustrated. And then she yeah. thought, well, I can put it in a, you know, in a Ziploc. It'll be ready for next time. That's right. And, and as time progressed and as he began to trust that environment, then, th- then they went back to their established mealtimes and he, yeah, he felt safe and he felt like he could trust that there was food that was going to be there. Ah, and it's similar with other behaviors. You know, if a child's been physically abused, um, every time something goes wrong, then of course they're going to tell you that they're not the one that spilled the milk or broke whatever because in, in their home growing up, when they're the one that did that, then they were physically mm-hmm. abused. And so why would I tell you the truth yeah. about something I might have done? I don't know how – I don't yeah. know you. I don't know what you're going to do to me. But it seems like it's a good thing to for everyone to learn that um, – I mean like the brothers and sisters, if you have children already and you're bringing a foster care child in – Kids are developed. They can grow. They're resilient. They'll learn. They'll change. They'll adapt in many situations. You just need to kind of be patient and not not automatically turn on them because they lied or they stole something. Well, and it's amazing the progress they can make. When, so when I was a caseworker, one of the first cases I had was a um, was a. Uh, boy who was about nine years old and uh, he came into foster care in the fall and so they did some testing with him initially at the school to determine where he needed to be what he needed Uh, while he was in foster care um, you know suddenly he had parents that uh, that cared about him doing his homework yeah. that, you know that read to him that played games with it that all these things so the end of the school year they tested him again he had jumped 20 IQ points within about a six or seven month period of time based solely on System. the interest and the effort that this family had put into helping him oh my heavens and then you've told stories off air about um, just a, a girl who had straight A's and great test scores it's just her mom wasn't healthy. Yeah, yeah. Her mom had some issues um, th- that led to it not being safe for her to be at home. She had she. In fact, so, so with this particular girl, it's kind of interesting. She came into foster care because her mom got angry with her and wanted to talk to her. She ran into her room and shut the door. The mom and locked it. For the mom to get in, she tried to knife her way through the door and then lit the door on fire, thinking she could burn her way through the door. So oh I mean, it was heavens. just not yeah. a stable place. So she this, wasn't well. Yeah. So this girl comes into foster care, and I went to visit the mom two days later, and the mom tells me, "I haven't eaten." in two days. And I said, well, why haven't you? I said, well, it's, it was her job to do the grocery shopping. I haven't eaten in two days. Well, she lived across the street, block and a half away from a grocery store, uh. but she hadn't eaten in two days based on. And so, I mean, some of these parents need some very serious help. Yeah. Um, but the other reality is, is that again, some of these, these kids are great kids. And they just need to know they're loved, right? And secure. And then have somebody, I mean, then systems, structures, right. somebody that cares that can show them what a normal life looks like. Right. And it can take some time. I think, you know, going back to the example you gave not long ago, you know, consider yourself as a 10-year-old and that you're living in this environment, You've but but it's the environment you're used to. So, you, you know, you go to school, you know your teacher, you've got your friends, you know yeah. what to expect. And then somebody comes along one day and takes you away from that, moves you to a different community, mm-hmm. you know, puts you with a family that you don't know, with oh. a teacher that you don't know, in a place where you've got no friends. The smells are all different. The foods are all different. Now, now, tell me how well you expect that particular child to do in school immediately exactly. or how well for them to adjust. You know, that's the last thing on their mind. They're thinking, when am I going to see my parents again? Right. What, you know, what happened to my favorite toys? You know, where are my clothes? What? It's um, so much. Well, and here, here's kind of the breakdown. So there's about 415,000 kids in foster care programs. Um, 52% are male. 48% are female. 39% are five years old or under. 
Uh, 23% are 6 to 10, 22% are 11 to 15, 16% are 16 to 20. Seems like the 16 to 20 year olds wouldn't be as easily uh, placed. Uh, some that, of tends these to, yeah, that tends to be true but because of those misconceptions yeah. a lot of families come and they say you know what i you know if a five-year-old if something goes crazy i can hold on to him and and yeah. you know, restrain him but, but if a 16 year old comes along then it's a little bit tougher to do but again that. they need love and then you've given us great examples of um of where that can happen 20 uh, of where somebody can come in and adopt an older child and make a huge difference 24 percent are black or african-american 42 percent are white 22 percent are hispanic um it's it's interesting too. Forty six percent are of foster care families are non relatives. So almost half of them are non relatives, according to this uh, national statistics. national statistics. Yeah. T- about twenty nine to thirty percent are relatives. So a lot of times you might get a chance to adopt or foster some of your own brothers and sisters' kids, your nieces, your nephews. Yeah, and that's really the first place that the state looks. Again, going back to that, the trauma involved in putting a child into foster care, removing them from their family, if they can be with someone that they know, mm-hmm. uh, and, and here in Utah at least, and I'm sure it's similar other places, that those in, initially when a child first comes into foster care, they're looking at, is there a relative, a grandparent, and or uncle, someone the child could stay with? And if there's not a relative, is there someone else? Is yeah. there a neighbor? Is there you know the parent of a friend? Is there an old school teacher? Is there somebody that knows the child that the child knows yeah. that's going to make it a, a more easy transition for them? Is well, what should we be doing? What can we do? So one, I think, I guess, is we could donate to the areas in our or, and get involved too. I mean, you donate money, but donate resources, donate time. I'm sure there's other things needed, clothing. I mean, I've seen at your offices clothing drives, all sure. these great activities. What else can we do to get more involved in this foster parenting world? Yeah, we we always kind of joke that it's about time. You know, if you've got if you've got a few. You know, months or weeks or months, then then get licensed. You know, become a foster parent. Look at what kinds of children. And and one of the aspects of that is, as a foster parent, you identify what you're comfortable with, the yeah. ages, the genders, the number of children. Uh, and and it's never a situation where the state just says, hey, we're going to place the child with you. But they call you and tell you about a child's background, what the issues are, and then you determine whether or not to have the child come and stay with you. Yeah. So if you've got the time, that's obviously the, the best place to start. So then if you don't have as much time, then you could look at, are there places, are there ways that you could work with and mentor a child? Here in the in the state of Utah, there's uh, the, so for every child in foster care, a guardian ad litem is assigned. And the guardian ad litem is an attorney that is intended to represent the the best interest of the child or what the child needs. And uh, and they have some folks that work with them that are called court-appointed special advocates or CASA workers. Mm-hmm. And those CASA workers are then assigned to go out and be mentors for kids in foster care. They'll go spend you know, a couple of days, you know, up to three or four days a month with the kids, just take them out, do some activities, see how they're doing, check in with a foster parent, yeah. and then report back to these attorneys so that they have more updated information. And there's similar similar programs around the U.S. with different advocates or mentors that can meet with kids and, and help, you know, just help kids. At the same time, helping foster parents, providing them with a little wow. bit of a break now and then. I, yeah, so they can do any level of that. Yeah, so so anywhere in between. Um, and then, you know, say if you don't have any time at all, then, you know, pull out your credit card or your checkbook mm-hmm. or whatever. Donate. And, and donate. Mm-hmm. Um, or find, I mean... Find people that are wanting children and are looking at it. Talk to them about fostering. Yeah, a lot of people that come to us are referred to us by by relatives or friends yeah. who know that based on their circumstances, they may be a good foster parent. They should look into it. See, you know what, Mike? Huge. And it's important. And it's such a great 
feeling watching these parents and their kids. Um, thanks for being with us, Mike. Sure. Appreciate it. Here. Everybody go check out uh, the foster care if you want to. UtahFosterCare.org is Utah's site. But go look up foster care in your uh, area and start getting involved. Let's make a difference, right? Let's not just keep being frustrated by what's going on around the world and the country. Let's start uh, stepping in, doing something about it. We'll take a break, come back to a little Coach's Corner. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. We'll be right back. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball! Play ball! Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, um, when you think about it, if everybody has some reason to be a little messed up, right? We've got our parents to blame. You know, we've got people in our world around us to blame. We have... You know, somebody in our childhood that hurt us or harmed us. So then you look at these foster care kids who really don't have any control. They, they, it's not like they can just be positive and think their way out of this. They have a hole that they're digging and they need to get out of it. And sometimes they just need you. So seriously, Go evaluate if there's some way you could get involved, um, whether time, money, energy, whatever you've got, uh, it makes a difference. I used to do a lot of training where I would take these families and, and just help them strengthen their marriages, their relationships to make sure that they were learning you know, good communication skills so that it wasn't destroying a marriage as they were fostering and caring for these kids. Um, one of the things that I have found is, is key – to parenting, as I coach a lot of parents and I coach a lot of kids, is uh, there's a few tricks about helping our kids believe in themselves. Um, a lot of talk is is thrown out there about self-esteem and kids need to have self-esteem and understand their own um, their own sense of who they are and and what they what they bring to this world. And, and I think that's true. Except what they also I believe need is uh, just they just need to know they're that they that they're cared for that they're worth something, and I don't know. We got to be careful as we are working with our families and our kids and our younger folks, our young adults, the uh, those just graduating maybe from high school. That we need to validate their worth, not just their works. Right, like. We talk a lot about what our kid did, and when he's graduating from high school, yeah, he graduated from high school. He he was you know um, valedictorian, top of his class, and we talk about all of these accomplishments. But as soon as we're tying our child's worth to their accomplishments, we might be setting them up for something. Because uh, most kids aren't valedictorian, right? There's one of those per class, so there's 500 that aren't. And yet, if that's what we keep seeing that everyone talks about, we start getting the social mirror reflecting back on us saying, you're not quite cutting it. We want to validate people's worths. And their worth is not just their works. It's not just their touchdown or their looks or their fame or the money they make. You know what it might also be is just their their work ethic, their, their sense of um, care for others. They... Um, 
their inherent value just simply because they're loved by a god, right? And so validate worth, not just works. Don't get caught up on outcomes only. A lot of parents are, and it it sets your children up to not necessarily value themselves. Another rule is to encourage your kids by understanding them, right? Encourage by itself means that we get within the heart of another. So do you even know what your child's goals are? I have parents come in all the time and they tell me, I don't, my kids won't listen to me. Well, they won't listen to you because you don't seem to care what's in their heart. Well, of course I do. Well, not if you're always telling them what to do. So when it comes to your kids, if you really want to encourage them, you got to listen a lot more than you're speaking. And that ex- that by letting them express, even if their expression you don't like or is it you know it frustrates you or it's not motivated enough, it doesn't matter. Let them express. Shine a light on their strengths. Identify what they are good at. Go figure out, take these strengths assessments we talk about on the show all the time um and Go learn about what they're good at. What are their character strengths? And there's, we've talked about it on the show recently with Fatima Doman and her strengths program. So if you just go look up our, our, um, our, uh, what are they called? Our podcast. That's it. Go look up our podcast and listen to them, folks, and go figure out what your kid's strengths are. Is is he intuitive? Is he hardworking? Is he social skills? Is he spiritual? And once you know what their strengths are, help them identify daily when they're progressing. Don't just look for where they're not progressing, which is so easy to critique. Why is your room such a mess? Man, you're reading a lot since you got out of school. Why are you reading so much? Talk about what they're doing well. Because if you pinpoint the progress and you know what their strengths are, you might start helping them believe in themselves. Heaven forbid. Anyway, basic stuff. That's the Coach's Corner. We'll take a break. Come back. Hour number three. Up next, we're going to learn how to eat healthier. This is the Matt Townsend Show. The Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1 855 Chat BYU. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to The Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, hour number three of the program. The show where we give you the tools, the information you need to grow healthier, happier lives. Today, we will be talking about breakfast. To eat or not to eat? That is the question. I'm going to say yes. And uh, make it three eggs mm, with sausage. <laughs> and lots of salsa. Mm. Anyway, or some cereal. We'll be talking about that with Dr. Ron Hager in just a few moments, Associate Professor of Exercise Sciences. He's trying to get us healthy one way or another. Also, uh, we will be talking to our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation. Find out what is coming up on their show at the top of the hour. I'm going to bet it involves sports. Pretty sure. And uh, obviously, then we'll do some more Coach's Corner. We'll have lots of fun. I got crazy stories about a new Burger King they're opening up. Mmm. Mmm. A Burger King spa. Don't give it away, Matt. A spa. 
And Pizza Hut is breaking records. How bad do you need a pizza? Now you can get a pizza pretty much anywhere on earth if you're willing to put out the money for it. No, if it's fresh, that may be a question. Well, fresh is a whole different story. Yeah. No, because they do actually have very special new little um, Pizza Hut warmers that can <laughs> keep your pizza fresh for days. They utilize your body heat. Yeah. To, yeah. So. Wow. And, yeah, moisture and your Like a your pizza body. vest? It's a pizza vest. <laughs> oh, they're fantastic. Apparently. You just slide your pizza slices of pizza just in your front pockets. It's pretty nice. We will be getting to all of that. But first, let's get to the headlines with Terry South. Find out what's going on around the rest of the world. Terry, what's up? Thanks, Matt. This is the fifth Super Tuesday of the primary season, if you're keeping count. California, the big prize today on the primary schedule. Under the radar, five other states also vote. Montana, New Jersey, New Mexico, South Dakota, and North Dakota will have a Democratic caucus. Mm. So keep those people in mind. And they're, what, campaign commercials are being inundated with all day and all the mailings and all that stuff. According to an update tally from the AP, Hillary Clinton has enough support from pledged delegates and superdelegates to be declared the Democratic nominee. She has reached the necessary number of 2,383 delegates, makes her the winner. Previously, with the recent tally including superdelegates, Clinton was expected to secure it by Tuesday, by today, with New Jersey and California voting. Bernie Sanders' campaign called the announcement a rush to judgment, saying that they will hope to convince superdelegates to back him as uh, by far the strongest candidate against Donald Trump. Bernie Sanders said this on Monday. People are disturbed that you would want to try to dismiss a judge based on his ethnicity. He needs to stop saying it. That's not Bernie. Not Bernie. Marco Rubio blamed voters for Trump's racism. Marco Rubio was very disturbed by Trump's nominee, Donald Trump's racist comments about a judge overseeing the Trump University case. Speaking with Florida media on Monday, the failed GOP candidate poked at Trump, whom he said he will vote for in November for his repeated suggestion that U.S. District Court Judge Gonzalo Curiel cannot adequately preside over the case because he is a Mexican-American. However, his remarks largely came off as a scolding Republican voters for having not selected him as the nominee. Marco Rubio said, this is not the choice I wanted us to have, obviously. I ran myself, he said. This is the voice of our voters they have given us for this primary. So he blamed the voters for well, who else can you blame? Speaker of, the Paul, Speaker of the House Paul Ryan does not agree with Donald Trump's comments about the judge. Mm. You know what he has said about this federal judge. So he, he came out and he said that uh, um, Paul Ryan came out and said that the, uh, the judge's comments, he disavowed Trump, mm. but said that Hillary Clinton is still worse. Yeah. The anti-vote, I guess, vote. And an update. On the Japanese boy lost in the forest. Yes. We reported we last him. week that he was found. Right. Now comes the question, are his parents going to be charged? Oh, interesting. There's 180 people searching the forest for this boy. Yeah. A lot of public you know, effort put forth. What's, What's the happening? result here? The Japanese parents who left their son in the woods last month as a form of punishment won't face criminal charges. A spokesman for the police department said on Monday. They won't. No charges for the parents. Whew. Excellent. Dodged a bullet. I guess. But we've already taught that you do not use the don't make me leave you in a bear infested forest. Yes. Infested might be a little bit of a strong. No, it was infested. Like an infestation. (laughs) They were coming out of everywhere. Bears. 
And this kid just managed to eke his way through that. So congrats to the parents, I guess. A lot of parenting questions lately. Uh, the the child that got into the gorilla cage, those parents aren't going to be prosecuted either, uh, nor are the Japanese parents that left their kid on the side of the road because he was throwing rocks. Yeah. I don't know. You know, I just think we need more parenting classes. That one seems to me like maybe they should have done something. Yeah. Well, I mean, especially if they don't want it to happen again in Japan. Yeah. Right? Like, apparently, the Japanese have some trouble disciplining like that. Sometimes when search crews are called out, yeah, there's maybe a thought of who covers the cost of that. I mean, that's it, right? Yeah. Have the parents just pay the cost of that. Well, if they're capable, because usually that's fairly expensive. Yeah. But I'm telling you, it's better than jail time. I mean, there's a guy that's been in jail many, many times. Really? Yeah. That's interesting. Just visiting. Oh. <laughs> Never well, in that charged. case, I've been to jail, too. So. Never charged. Just visiting. Hey, it's also VCR day. Do you still have a VCR? Uh, no, I don't. We don't have a VCR. We still have uh, cassettes. And I don't know why we still have them, because we've actually transferred them to digital forms, and right. yet we still keep the... It's like you don't want to get rid of the little, you know, sleeve. I have a VCR DVR, DVD combo. Do you really? In our closet. Somebody's a braggart. I don't use it. It's unplugged and just up braggart. top. It's up there. Somebody's cocky. What? I'm just telling you I have one. We have a Bluetooth. Bluetooth? What do you mean? Blu-ray? No, Blu-ray. Play? No yeah. combo. Like Bluetooth. We have a Blu-ray. Blu-ray. Yeah. I just use my PlayStation for the DVD. You know, we use that too. Yeah, you just pop it in, grab your game controller, confuse the child. But He's now, like, we're going to play a game. No, we're watching Don't you a find movie. it weird? I don't even want a DVD player anymore. No. You don't even need it. Mm-hmm. Just stream that bad boy. Well. And pay the cable company. Hand over fist. Depends on if the internet is working for the evening. <clears throat> yeah, totally true. Totally true. Hey, um, okay, we got to talk about it. Pizza Hut. They're changing the world. Pizza Hut now delivers to the top of Mount Kilimanjaro. So if you're if you're on well, one of the highest peaks in you this, know in Kilimanjaro trek history, this is the biggest this is the biggest delivery ever done. Wasn't this a stunt? Africa is now not a stunt. They don't make regular deliveries. Sure, they the, do. Do you yeah. know how many people are dying of hunger in Kilimanjaro? Uh, Pizza Hut has now delivered. A fresh ordered pizza. They used an airplane. This is what's cool. Mm. They, they used an airplane. We have audio from the actual trip. Wow. A motor vehicle and a relay, a relay of professional hikers okay. walking the pizza. Step. Isn't, isn't Kilimanjaro in the desert? Sounds like an Arctic yeah. wind. Well, no. When you're up at twenty thousand feet, it's this windy. Okay. It is. Okay. And it's, it's colder than you'd think. Really? Oh yeah. All right. Uh huh. And but they they were all they stuffed the pizza in a specially designed backpack to deliver uh-huh. the pepperoni yeah. pie. Yeah, with extra cheese, by the way, sounds to like the a, summit. Sounds like a stunt. No, spokesman for the Guinness Book of World Records yeah. confirmed that Pizza Hut <laughs> Africa, owned by Yum Brands, Yum, set a uh, world record for the highest elevation pizza delivery at nineteen thousand three hundred and forty-seven feet. There's the guy on the bike. There you go. Finally delivered. Why you're, you seem like you're negative about this? You're well, doubting this. It's written like they make regular deliveries. What do you mean? 
I think this was a one-time thing just to set no, the record. No, don't you think if you just summited one of the highest mountain, the highest mountain in Africa, yeah. you'd want a pizza? No. A pizza pie? <laughs> Probably not. I want some water. Are maybe some uh, a protein source other than <sighs> meat and cheese with layer of bread. You're so hard to please. I am. By the way, this isn't Pizza Hut's biggest uh, event. Delivery, yeah. They've had a delivery in 2001 when it hired cosmonauts to deliver a pizza pie <laughs> to the International Space Station. Right. They hired them. Yeah. Hello? Hello? Anybody? <laughs> pizza delivery. <laughs> That's the bell they have on the space shuttle. I um, uh, Related to this, but kind of unrelated, you said it the Yum brand. Yeah. They own Yum. Pizza Hut. Kentucky Fried Chicken, I believe Taco Bell. Taco Bell, PepsiCo, don't I they? Think, I think they're involved. I'm not sure what the ownership is there. But uh, Muhammad Ali, yeah, his uh, funeral will be in a stadium, the public funeral. Oh, cool. In Louisville on Friday. Low- Louisville? It's in the KFC Yum Center. Really? Many of the news reports are failing to point that out because it's kind of hard to talk about a yeah. solemn occasion, and then say the KFC Yum Center. Join us now live for the funeral of Muhammad Ali at the Yum Center. It does like, sound weird. On top of the stadium is a massive but it's not picture just of the Colonel. It's Yum with an exclamation point. I know. Yum! <laughs> Do you like that? Yum! So there, I, I heard one report that way, and then everyone else says, he'll be in a, a stadium there in the Louisville area. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. That's what's happening to our country. Mm. What's happening? To our country, we did talk about. Um, I, I, I can't. I, I can't. I'm going to tell a story that I can't share, but I'm, I'm going to tease it now. How's that going to work? Burger King. How do you share something? You I'm going to share, share a general oh, no, tease. Enough. It's a tease. I'm teasing. Okay. You're getting too excited. Burger King. Yeah. Is um, they they have a new spa they're opening. It's called Burger King Spa. Mmm. Matt, that was on a tease. That Burger was... King Spa. Mm-mm, mm-mm, mm-mm. It's a spa. They offer fry sauce baths. And a Burger King. <laughs> so not only do you get a facial. Huh? I'm not going to tell you how. Okay. But you get some of Burger King's finest fare. Mm. All char broiled. They have Whopper hot dogs now. See? <laughs> tell me that doesn't just scream... Spa. A Whopper dog? Yeah. I don't even know what they're called. I'd like a treatment on my face and a Whopper dog, please. Some pickles with that, please. But we're not going to talk about it. Right. That's just a tease. Coming up. I'm going to share that with the brethren of BYU Sports Nation. See if they approve, Mm -hmm. if they like that story, if they want to participate. Yes. We'll get to that. And it's also going to be fun because it's going to be right after uh, Ron has joined us, Ron Hagers, because Ron is the... You know, he's all about healthy. Yeah. Uh, yeah have breakfast. He's going to tell us to have good breakfast. Be healthy. It's so good he's here because he then keeps us healthy. Um, anything else going on in the news that we need to worry about? I mean, that might be more important than Pizza Hut commercials or Burger King Spa. Mm-mm-mm-mm-mm. I found this story entertaining. In uh, Norwich, I believe, Connecticut. Yeah, eastern Connecticut. A good Samaritan gave a Norwich police officer some help Wednesday in chasing down a road rage suspect. Norwich Police Officer Matthew Seidel and Matthew uh, Crodel of the department's community policing unit were conducting a motor vehicle stop 
Um, after a reported road rage incident in which the vehicle was involved during a traffic stop, the suspected vehicle and the driver, later identified as 27-year-old Dwayne Crawford, fled the scene on foot, engaging Ooh. the officers in a foot pursuit. So the police are chasing yeah, him down the yeah, road. Get him, get during him. the pursuit, an unknown citizen passing by in a vehicle offered a ride to one of the police officers, which the officer accepted. <laughs> the officer was uh, dro- dropped off in front of Crawford on the same road and then was apprehended. The citizen left the scene. The Norwich police would like to thank the anonymous citizen who assisted in the apprehension of Crawford. Who Hop in, officer. Hop in. Here's. We got him. We got him. Here we go. <laughs> so the guy pulls over. Need a ride? Gets him in the car. <laughs> speeds ahead of the guy running down the street. Drops the cop off. And then they, the cops <laughs> pin him in. That's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. Help out where you can. Hey, one more quick story. Tortoise injured in a fire. Gets a hand-painted 3D printed shell. Huh? See, these 3D printers are really coming in handy now. Yeah. It's uh, time to celebrate. To celebrate? A tortoise that... <laughs> Thank you. Wow. A tortoise that lost most of his Jeez. shell uh, in a forest fire got a 3D printed prosthetic replacement thanks to a team of specialists in Brazil. Mm. We'll put this up on our site, our Twitter page. Celebrate. Celebrate. It's a celebration. The female tortoise named Fred. Of course. What would you get a name of tortoise, right? <laughs> a female tortoise, right? Yeah, female tortoise named Fred. Frederica, of course. Frederica. Okay. Survived not just the blaze, but also made it through two bouts of pneumonia. By the way, nothing worse than a coughing turtle. You think snapping turtles are on, right? Coughing turtles, even worse. When we saw the animal in that, that state, we said, wow, it looks like Freddy Krueger. Dr. Rodrigo, Rodrigo Rabello, who found Fred and named her after the horror movie icon, told the Brazilian outlet, fantastico, it is the first prosthetic of a 3D shell of a tortoise in the world. So this is world record breaking. And then what they did is so they, bu- they built a shell prosthetic that could fit around. And they could do that because they could take little Fred's body and see how the, how what the contours were like. They built the perfect shell for it, and then they had to hand paint it because they didn't want it to look like whoa, look at that really white albino-y, plasticky looking tortoise tortoise shell, right? So they then painted it up, and it looks pretty much like a real tortoise shell. You know, isn't that great? By the way, in about five years, uh, I'm sure we'll be 3D printing tortoise shells everywhere, and they'll be branded. <laughs> By the 3D printer. Hey, no way. Is that an icon? That's an icon tortoise. This Is tortoise... that a laser print? <laughs> this tortoise brought to you by Hitachi. <laughs> the Hitachi <Xerox>. tortoise. <laughs> I can only see what they're going to be doing. Yeah, what they're going to be doing. Hewlett Packard, please. Anyway, uh, so that's pretty cool. Great. All this technology now can save a turtle. Cool. And... Uh, you can probably, you know, maybe make bigger shells that the, the turtle can grow into, right? Just keep adding new shells. Plus maybe an array of shells. Maybe you can have five shells, maybe a morning shell. Okay, let's move on. Maybe an evening, like an evening attire. Maybe something to wear when you're going swimming. <laughs> it's all about choice, folks. We'll take a break, come back. Dr. Ron Hager will be joining us, teaching us about uh, to have a breakfast or not. Hmm. Dispelling some of the myths. Stick with us. We'll be right back.
Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Guess who's here? Ron Hager. Dr. Ron Hager joins us. He's an associate professor of exercise sciences in the College of Life Sciences at Brigham Young University. He's here today, by the way, to talk to us about breakfast. To eat or not to eat, that is the question Ron uh, poses, except, Ron, breakfast, the most important meal of the day, my mom said. Yeah, you know, a lot of people have said that over the years, and it's kind of funny because, you know, you go all the way back to maybe the 15 and 1600s, and there were physicians who who were saying that, you know, if you don't eat breakfast, uh, you know, you won't you won't uh, survive. Yeah, and there were others who were oh, saying, die. and there were others who were saying that that when you sleep, your entire body shuts down, including your digestion, and so you don't want to eat breakfast because you don't want to put one meal on top of another oh, yeah. un- undigested. You don't meal. want to double up, <laughs> right? So, so there, there's a lot of issues out there, and you know, even more recently. You go back to the about a century ago, maybe the early 1900s, and and uh, you know the typical American breakfast was probably like um, a, a bowl or a cup even of a of a hot grain based cereal yeah. like like oats or wheat or oh, something man, like yeah. that, and uh, usually a piece of fruit like maybe you know an apple or an orange or something and a cup of coffee and, and, and maybe a, maybe some kind of bread like a. Small bagel, a roll, or, no omelets, or, or something like that. So that was the typical American breakfast, believe it or not. And then a man named uh, Edward Bernays came along. He's like the the father. I of, love uh, Bernays sauce. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know if he had anything to do okay. with that. He was actually the nephew of Sigmund Freud. Oh, really? And so he had some, you know, understanding and background of of uh, psychology and human behavior, and uh, and and he was, you know, credited with a, a number of. Uh, times when he was able to influence the entire American public, and he was hired by the Beechnut Packing Company. Oh, here we go! And uh, and they one of the things that they produced was uh, bacon, mm. and 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 in an effort to get their bacon sales up, uh, they hired him, and uh, because he was the he was kind of the father of public relations and yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, advertising. And, and, and push act, the pork, and, and actually persuading you know entire populations to do things. And uh, they hired him, and he went to the company's in-house physician. And back then, and even now, large companies sometimes yeah. have you know on-site doctors. And and uh, and they he went to that company's physician and and said, "Do you believe that a hearty breakfast would be good for the American people?" And of course, the the, the <laughs> physician knows where his bread's buttered, right? right? So he says, "Well, yeah, you know, I think absolutely, I, I think that makes sense to me." And so Edward Bernays asked him to write letters to 5,000 of his doctor colleagues and asked them the same question. And so without any, you know, real uh, scientific evidence, they, you know, they all kind of said, well, yeah, a hearty breakfast, that, that sure seems reasonable. And so then, so they began to promote that result. A poll. As, as if it was research. Yeah. And they put it out in the magazines and the newspaper and said, you know, 5,000 doctors agree. Nine out of 10 doctors agree. Exactly. Bacon is good for you. And so then it became sort of the... You know the Grand Slam breakfast. You know the eggs and the bacon. But before that, uh, oh, yeah. you know, meat and and bacon and stuff. You know, wasn't really part of breakfast. And but that so, is, I mean, like, oh, that makes sense, right? Oatmeal would be it's so natural and healthy and easy to make, and yeah, it's that, the perfect I, meal. I even came across some uh, some uh, some historical facts that uh, you know the oatmeal was kind of a prized possession in terms of you know making it well. Yeah, and 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 to make it. 
to make it uh, to make oatmeal, it was said that you need at least four hours. To make good oatmeal, uh, you need at least twelve hours. <laughs> to to make you know the greatest excellent oatmeal, twenty four hours it takes to make it. So they'd be making oatmeal all day. Well, they'd make it one day and eat it the next day, you know, and it, so it was yeah. always a, a lag. You know, yeah, but they hours. weren't refrigerating it. <laughs> yeah, so the, the, you know the idea of instant oatmeal that. Oh. You know, it's artificially flavored to taste like cinnamon or strawberries or bananas or whatever. That's that's a relatively new thing. But then yeah. there's also this idea of breakfast cereals. Yes. And and, and I, I thought this was kind of fascinating too. But, uh, you know, breakfast cereals like the prepackaged box cold type cereals that we're so used to now, it's almost like, you know, has there ever been a time when those didn't exist? And in right. fact, there was a time when they didn't exist. But uh, it was actually an accidental discovery, cornflakes, uh you know, some corn was overcooked, and they took it out of the pot and dried it, and it kind of flattened out and made sort of a flake. And it all started with Kellogg. Um, but the Seventh-day Adventists, believe it or not, uh, started the first uh, cold cereal pre-processed, you know, packaged uh, cereal really? uh, company. And, and uh, Will Kellogg, the founder of the Kellogg Company, was uh, was an Adventist. And uh, but But they were trying to make healthy yeah. types of cereals. Uh, that were more convenient and, you know, easy to use. So one thing has led to another, and and, and, and now yeah. we have something. You know, I, I came across a quote. It uh, sounds like the it sounds like the devil has taken over now because <laughs> kind now of we have Fruit Loops and Lucky Charms. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and one author and writer, uh, Dave Barry from the Miami Herald, says yeah. that uh, that um, that th- this kind of uh, cereal is a compressed breakfast compound. <laughs> uh, you know, so he, he identifies that. And, and, he, and what he says kind of rings true because, you know, I teach this chronic disease class on campus and we talk a little bit about, you know, processed and refined foods. Actually, we talk a lot about it. But, you know, you see these advertisements, especially geared towards children, Saturday right. morning cartoons and things like that. And you see them advertising a bowl of cereal, this, uh, you know, compressed compound or whatever <laughs> you want to call it, as part of a healthy breakfast. And it's usually in a picture or an illustration, this bowl of cereal with a piece of fruit, with a glass of orange juice, right. and maybe a piece of whole wheat toast or something like that. And, and Dave Barry, in his little uh, uh, editorial, he says, shouldn't, 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 shouldn't we say that the cereal is adjacent yeah. to, to the healthy breakfast, not part of the healthy breakfast? Because he says, you know, you could actually take that bowl out and 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 put a can of shaving cream in there and say the can of shaving cream is part of a healthy breakfast that's as well. So, true. so Dave so, Barry, that's great. So so this is advertising, and this yeah. is Edward Bernays, and this is how you know things are done today. But the, but ultimately the question comes down to: Should you eat breakfast or not? Yeah. So your mother said it's the most important she meal said of the it day. Was, yeah. Uh, well, my mother said every meal is important. Right, yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> but this was a big one, right? And, and so here's another little interesting fact: uh, back in the early days. Uh, when people were more active in terms of their employment, you know, they were more agricultural or, yeah. you know, they got up with the sun. They didn't always eat breakfast right when they got up. They went out and did some work yeah. and then came back. Like a brunch. And, ate. and there's actually some historical evidence that the breakfast was the biggest meal of the day. To get you through the day. To, and then the lunch was just kind of the smaller and to keep you going. Keep and you the, the dinner was actually the smallest meal of the day. Ah, yeah, so that's see? kind of interesting, okay. too. We've we got to come back okay. and talk about this. More with Dr. Ron Hager. We're going to go over the, the reasons why we must have breakfast and the reasons why maybe you should not. Stick with us. We're finding out. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back.
Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Well, should we have breakfast or not? Who better to tell us and teach us than our own professor, Dr. Ron Hager, uh, Associate Professor of Exercise Sciences at the College of Life Sciences. He's also a chronic disease prevention expert. And uh, let's let's hear it. What do you think, Ron? Breakfast or not? Well, you know, a lot of people, when they have a question, they go straight to the Internet. Yeah. You know, they go straight to Google, you know, because that's where all the answers are. <laughs> so I thought, well, I want to see what everybody else might be seeing. So I did that. I did a little Google search, and I just typed in, should I eat breakfast? And one of the first, you know, links that came up was uh, a little article or a webpage uh, titled, 10 Reasons Why Breakfast is a Must. Uh-huh. And then, like, right underneath that, the very next link was one that says, uh, seven reasons why you should not eat breakfast. Probably by the exact same organization. Maybe. I didn't actually <laughs> look to see. But but one of the one of the reasons... Some are claiming that you that breakfast is a must, like you said, the most important meal of the day is because it wakes up your metabolism mm. and gets your engine humming. Yes. So, uh, you know, I mean, maybe maybe you know that kind of makes sense intuitively, but then uh, you know, there's other people who are saying that uh, breakfast doesn't increase your metabolism and <laughs> and so forth. So, you know, for the the various lists for why you should and why you shouldn't are almost identically opposite. Well, you know, for, one, one of them is uh, gets – there's – one reason you shouldn't is because there's so much junk. Breakfast foods are junk. Right. Yeah. And there's – there's and that's great. You know, there's some, there's some truth to that. You know, you don't want to, you know, eat the donuts or the danishes uh, or even the sugar-based cereals. Uh, you know, it's okay to stay away from those things. You right. Know, if you wanted to have a piece of fruit – um, I mean, even a glass of orange juice. I don't. I don't really advocate for drinking your calories, right. but you know, I, I would say you know maybe maybe even. I mean, if you want to drink some orange juice, fine. But if if you want to do a little better, maybe skip the orange juice and have an orange and have a real orange. Yeah, yeah or something like that, or a slice of whole wheat toast. You know, there's probably nothing wrong with that. Get a little fiber uh, going in your diet first thing in the morning. There's probably no no problem with that. Uh, so so yeah, it's you know, and, and and I've noticed a change. I don't know if you've noticed this in your life, but. I used to actually wake when I was younger. I used to wake up actually fairly hungry, yeah. and and that was like you know I got to eat. Now I'm a little older. I wake up and and my metabolism has changed. It's probably you know part of my telomeres getting shorter, and I yeah. get closer to death or whatever. But <laughs> but, uh, but is that what it is? Maybe, maybe so. But you are looking different. Yeah, but 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 I don't uh, I, I don't wake up hungry no, anymore. Even either. if I don't eat much at night no. before I go to bed, and so I guess my suggestion is to try and figure out. You know what's going to work best for you. Kind of be in tune with yeah. your body, and, uh, and you know. And for many people, you know, they they find that eating a little bit later, like maybe you know after ten or approaching eleven, and maybe they only yeah. eat tw- and maybe they only eat twice a day. And there's nothing wrong with that. You can Matt, find. Is, doesn't everyone just have their own code that you kind of need? Like, don't you just need to figure yourself out? Yeah, exactly. And that's what a lot of people don't do because they're so. Bombarded by the media and the advertising right. and the tradition and the habits, uh, you know, and all this kind of stuff, that they kind of ignore, I guess, the opportunity to listen to their body and just do what they think they need. Yeah, and, you know, j- j- just yeah. Deal, just deal with what your body's telling you, not what everybody else or everything else is telling like, you. Like my brain won't work unless I have some food. Yeah, in me. Yeah, and yet. I also know that if I put like sugar in me in the morning, it, I will be asleep by ten ten oh five. Right, so that doesn't do you any good. Now there, there's actually some research. We've mostly talked about you know anecdotal perspectives and 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 ideas on you know whether you should eat breakfast or not. 
But one of the most commonly researched questions regarding this topic is, you know, if you want to lose weight, yeah. is, is breakfast right or wrong? Okay. And, uh, and, and there's actually some data that are suggests, you know, that, 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 that suggests that success, people successful at losing weight uh, do most often eat breakfast. Uh, and this, this evidence comes from the National Weight Control Registry uh, where they've looked at what they call successful losers who have been able to lose at least 30 pounds and keep it off. By the way, when you just said successful losers, Ben perked right up. Oh, did he? Oh, I don't okay. know why, but I just want that known to everybody that's not able to see. Yeah, okay. That's, okay, anyway. that's good. Yeah. Go ahead, supposed to be yeah. anonymous and confidential. I'm oh, sorry. You just were like, huh? You talking to me? Yeah. So, so from the National Weight Control Registry, they found that most of the people in this registry, 78% reported eating breakfast every day and almost 90% reported eating breakfast at least five times a week. Huh. So, And these are the people that have been deemed most successful at losing weight and then keeping it off for okay. the long term. Yeah. So, and, that, and that's been published. That, that's actual research data. However, there's other data uh, from other you know, studies that suggest that breakfast eaters uh, were more likely to exercise regularly. So kind of that concept yeah. of kind of getting your energy up so that you can exercise maybe in the morning or throughout the day, that kind of thing. Uh, and that women who regularly ate breakfast, actually ate fewer total calories over the course of the day than non-breakfast eaters. Ah. So the ones who don't eat breakfast, by the time they get to lunch, they're famished, so maybe they tend to overeat. Right. Right? So, so there's, you know, there's all kinds of studies out there. And then lastly, uh, there's a study from the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition just published a couple years ago, the effectiveness of breakfast recommendations on weight loss, a randomized controlled trial. So a very powerful study design. They took people who, who skip breakfast and people who eat breakfast, and then within those two groups, they randomly assigned them to a control group hmm. where they just got some information on healthy breakfast and to a no-breakfast category and to a eat-breakfast category. So even among the, the non-breakfast eaters, some of them were randomized to eat breakfast, some were not, and then there's a control. And then in the no-breakfast uh, group, some were told to not eat breakfast while some were told to eat breakfast. And, and then they looked at weight loss over the long term. No difference in any group. No in, difference in, in in either category. Yeah. So, so yeah. So there's all kinds of research out there. So so what this tells me is exactly what you said just a few minutes ago, Matt. You got to figure out what works best for you. For you. Yeah. And and be realistic about it. Yeah. You know. I mean, maybe bacon once in a while isn't such a bad thing, but you got to be careful with things like the processed meats and the refined grains. Right. You know, sugar based cereals. I mean, those aren't doing anybody any good, especially children. Uh, so I kind of agree with you know Dave Barry that you could probably have a bowl of dirt and say that that's part of a nutritious breakfast <laughs> or shaving cream, given how it's advertised, right? No, so. I think that's and that's that to me is always your point, right? That it's your body learn to run it, learn to figure it out, and quit turning it over to everyone else to yeah, make these decisions. Absolutely, and be healthy, Dr. Ron Hager. Thank you so much. Happy Keep to be up here. The great work. Have fun at breakfast. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, <laughs> he's going to a big breakfast at IHOP. He's the man, healthiest guy you'll ever see. Uh, Associate Professor of Exercise Sciences in the College of Life Sciences, Ron Hager. He's here every other week. He's going to keep us from dying early. We'll take a break. We'll come right back to our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation. Stick with us. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Mm, I can do anything better than you can. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
by Ben's favorite band. Ben, what Ben? What's the name of the band? It's from the movie Fame. Fame. Oh, I loved Fame. Great movie. Anyway, let's shoot it down to uh, two of our uh, Fame stars, stars of Fame, our Hall of Fame, down at BYU Sports Nation. Spencer and Brian, how are you, gentlemen? Fantastic, Matthew. Thank you for asking. How are you? I am excellent. Do you guys love Fame as much as I do? Oh, nope. Brian's ready to buy his own star on the Hollywood <laughs> Walk of Fame. Nope. Brian and Fame; those two words are synonymous. I'm only, Absolutely. I'm only famous in Provo. Outside of Provo, that's no, there. that's not true. I live up in I live up in Salt Lake County. Super famous there as well. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, I'm actually it's actually more towards hate. No, B dog. They call you B dog. <laughs> oh no no no. Hey guys, you famous? We refer to as Y list celebrity. Y list, Y list. Oh, yeah. hey, okay. You know what? You know what's funny? I, so, I, it, it's kind of annoys my wife too. Wherever we go out in certain places in Utah County, a lot of you know fans just naturally come up and just say hi and, and talk sports and stuff, which is cool. Uh, but we were in California, and uh, somebody came up to me, and he was the the teller at Seven Eleven, and he came rushing out of his car, and he was like. <laughs> You're not Brian Logan, are you? And I was like, Oh my gosh, no, no way this happened. And I was like, Yeah, and I, I was kind of getting excited, man, because I was like, Wow, okay, first time out of Utah County. And he was like, Oh, you left your ID. And I was like, oh, <laughs> Cool, cool. All right, thanks, appreciate that, man. Did you sign an autograph? No, I was so dis- I, mean, I, I was so sad, disappointed. And I was like, Yeah, man, I know. So Don't you hate it? You. You're not famous. You're not cool. Nothing worse than when you think you're famous and then you're not. Right. That's the worst feeling ever. It, it is. It, there's a worse feeling. Um, I've got a story I've got to tell you guys. Uh, do you guys like Burger King? Mm, McDonald's. I'm, okay. Yeah. You're a McDonald's guy? Yeah. McDonald's. Spence? Um, yeah, I like Burger King's fries and okay. occasionally their chicken sandwich. Okay, so here's what I know. I know I know two things. Oh, I love Chick-fil-A sandwich. Sorry, keep going. Okay, so here's what I know. You guys... Love Burger King-ish, and you love spas. So what if you found out that in Finland, Helsinki, they were going to mix the two, and Burger King is going to open a spa, a spa resort, and they're going to have saunas and you know steam rooms where you can also get your Whopper and go get a facial, maybe sit in front of a television screen, and would you guys be willing to sit in a sauna with a towel around your waist and and eat a Burger King with a soggy bun? No, that's just super gross. Really? What do you think saunas do to French fries? That, nothing, because apparently French fries will not decompose if you leave them out on the sidewalk that's for so like seven sad. years. <laughs> you don't. You, so you you don't like this idea? It takes some, some calories. I think that's off disgusting. What? What what says Burger King more than lounging around with just you and five buddies in your towels, sweat dripping from your chin? They don't wear towels in Finland. Pa- pardon? Okay. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right. They don't? Okay. End this. End this. End it. Abort! Turn the, Abort. Turn the music off. Okay. They don't? Okay. Gross. Yeah. I'm going with McDonald's. Oh, my goodness. How about we just go to a restaurant and eat our food at a restaurant where it's the most fresh? How about you just make good food? And then yeah, partner, exactly. Partner up with a completely different industry. How about you just wear towels? How about that? 
That's yeah, good. yeah, that too. Yeah. Don't call me old fashioned. Hey, but- listen, my uh, my days of eating fast food on the regular and junk food in the home mm-hmm. are all but over now, Matt. Really? Yeah. Why? Because my wife has inherited a program that she wholeheartedly believes in, and oh, she boy. grasps onto something. <laughs> it is over, baby. So, so <laughs> what's the program? Weight Watchers? It's called Twenty One Day Fix. Ah, oh, boy. There goes I'm not the f- doing it, but she buys all the food, so I eat all the meals. Oh, you're doing eats. it. So you are doing it. So at least nutrition-wise, I am doing it. Now, I don't <sighs> exercise with her per se because I'm at work when she exercises, yeah, but yeah, yeah. but when it comes to meals and nutrition, like by default, mm-hmm. I, I am doing it. That's, that's true, man. But Spencer, you know, you're here today at work, and we could just take you to Sweeto Burrito. You could do that. And just, you know, sneak, yes. sneak a little burrito in. I don't know. I mean, I yeah. You, I, I eat understand. a lot of fish. Mm. It's great. Oh, that's I like good. Fish, it's healthy. Fish is great. A lot of eggs. It's good and healthy. For a lot yeah. of oatmeal. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of uh, chicken. That's yeah. really good. Nothing wrong with that, man. No, it's good. Have you had any gator meat? I have not had gator meat. <laughs> uh, what is it with you and gators? Man? I don't know. We we just found another story where a guy was running away from cops and he ran right into a gator, <laughs> and the gator ate his arm. What? Yeah, so I'm just telling you, don't eat gator meat. How do you run into a gator and not know? Like, oh, I'm sorry, sir. Ah! Well, you know, ah! by the second step onto a gator, you know you're onto a gator. You probably trip over. If you trip over a gator and then the the family's there, then... It it, it ain't pretty. Yeah. 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 If you get a family of gators... Honestly, nothing worse than running into a family of gators. That's actually a technique that I use <laughs> while playing football. It's called a gator roll. Ooh. Where if I had one leg of the ball carrier and you're not going to get him down because they were like 10, yeah, gator roll. thousand times yeah, my size. And then you just gator roll. And two things are going to happen. They are either going to uh, submit uh, to your will and yes. fall or they're going to tear an ACL. Snap your leg off. Yeah. Sure. Mm-hmm. Either You got two options. But either way. Easy. You rolled. (laughs) Either way. Either way. It's all good. That's right. Did you guys hear about the ding-dong recall? No. Yeah. No more idiots allowed to vote for Trump. (laughs) Ding-dong recall. No, ding-dongs, the ding-dong snack treat is they're recalling, I guess, thousands or millions of ding-dongs because um, they're somewhere in the mix. They had mixed it with possibly peanut butter or peanut um, flour or something. Oh, yeah. I know. Tragedy. Tragedy. I'm, I'm going to vote. I'm a, I'm a Trump voter. Are you? Mm-hmm. Well, see then. I think it's going to accelerate the second coming. Of I Christ, could win an election so. with a ding dong. <laughs> and I want to go. I want to go to heaven. Is that what you're doing? You're accelerating the millennium. You're accelerating the apocalypse. <laughs> yes, I think, That's pretty smart. I think, I think so. I think, ding dongs will be huge. The, uh, the rapture, so. <laughs> That is classic. Oh, you guys kill me. Hey, um, you guys still doing your show now? I mean, we are doing it. What's going on? What's what's anything well, we, with the Big Twelve today? No, well, we do have something with the Big Twelve. What? In fact, we have ESPN Big Twelve blogger Jake Trotter back on the show. We're going to ask him: Has a championship game or the announcement thereof affected expansion in any way? Mm. I think it has. We'll get into the details of that with a guy that for a living follows the Big 12 and is tied in with a bunch of important people down there. So we'll get his take on that. So that's where we'll get the Big 12 topic. But after that, it's all about 
future opponents, Matt. And yes. we all know the next game is Arizona. Next <gasps> man up. Next game up. One next game man up. Coach speak. Yes. But we're putting on the wide-angle lens. Ooh. And we're asking our BYU Sports Nation friends, which future opponent, in terms of announced games, so this goes all the way through the year 2026. Wow, yeah. Which future opponent are you most excited about and why? Wow. That's good. There is some serious, serious national championship pedigree involved within BYU's future opponents. That's great. This is this is good. That's a great question. Why don't you ask sometime about Gator, uh, my Gator Ball game? Just, we don't have to ask about it because you just bring it up generally. Right? I know, but I want you to ask What's it on. Gator, I want you to ask ball? it on your Gator, poll. Okay, Brian just asked the question. What's, a Gator, Bowl what's Gator Ball? Gator Bowl baseball. Oh, Gator I'll just Bowl. do it quick. It's baseball in you know in their enclosed stadium. Five alligators chum the baselines, chum the players' clothes, play ball. Okay, if you so hit a gator, gators wandering around yeah. the ballpark uh-huh. while you play baseball. Yes, fifteen footers. <laughs> <laughs> and if you get hit, if you get eaten by a gator or gator rolled, as you call it, Bri, you um, you're automatically out, and the inning's over. <laughs> you're on you're on the permanent disabled list. <laughs> but I'm telling you, that would that would right there that would pick up Major League Baseball out of its slump. Oh, Play ball. I would definitely. Watch. It would be a return to the that. Roman days, exactly. the Gladiator Coliseum, when they had tigers just like exactly intermittently strewn with throughout the <laughs> arena. Athletes are just modern day. Uh, gladiators. So, and you'll never, is. you'll never try to take out a second baseman again because why would you? There's a, a, the a gator could take out the second part baseman. Of the game, man. I'm oh, telling you, you we, t- we know the risks that's why, that are associated with with sports. That's why I'm here. And if we it works know, in baseball, it could work in basketball. Those cleats, we may not see our loved ones anymore. <laughs> you oh, know, know wow, that's intense. <laughs> anyway, uh, just I just want you to pitch it on your show one time. Just pitch it. Uh, where are the funds that you're going to – it's sponsored, right? Yeah, Especially. it's sponsored by Swamp People, the TLC series. <laughs> I, I would love to give you a shout-out, but see, the thing is, last time I did that, I got in trouble because there's yes. no money. The umpires will be dressed up as Grim Reapers. Oh. <laughs> no. The, <laughs> it's so true. That's great. But really who they are, are they're the Swamp People. They're the you're Wranglers. Out! They're Gator Wranglers. <laughs> that is oh, great. That is you guys have issues. I'm telling you, it's cool. All right, guys, I gotta let you go. I gotta let you go. You got a show to do, and you gotta go get. You gotta go to the spa first. We're ready. Nope, we're good. We've already been to the spa, had our Burger eat, King Whopper, eat my McDonald's, and then go to the spa. There you go. Our fries that don't decompose. We're good, man. You're loving it. Hey, and good luck on that diet. Thank you. Twenty one. Thank you very much. Twenty one day fix. Eating out of a container. Twenty one days to you know where. Hey, uh, thanks, guys. Knock them dead. Have hey, a great show. Bye bye, Brian. Bye bye. Fun times. I'm telling you. Gator ball. Gator ball. And you, it's just fast game. It's always fast. Ooh. And if you have a really good pitcher on board, you can call in a designated gator. So every team has three gators that they can call in at any time. And if you want to call in your designated gators, you just open a door and your gators run out. And you've just intensified the game. Mm, I'm telling you. Keep your eye on the ball and the gator. So how do you stop the gator from attacking the player before they've hit the ball? You, you, that's the player's problem. Just keep moving. So They're, is that the benefit of a designated gator that you yeah. can uh-huh. 
can just like pounce yeah, on it. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. And I think it's cool. Umpires will obviously be on elevated little stands, so they're above the fray. Big money. This isn't that hard to do. I mean, and it's a smart thing to do. Don't you think? Yeah. It's. I mean, smart. I mean, I, I mean, the hard part probably hard getting the Gators to Colorado. True. I don't know True. what elevation would do to a gator. And we don't want to harm the gators. No, no gators no. would be harmed in it. In fact, the gators would be fed. True. And then there's obviously going to be a players association issue. They'll be mad about it. You know, players missing arms, legs. Yeah, but I mean, I think it will be easier to get the players on board than the gators. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm telling you. The gators might unionize. The thing is, it. I can't do everything, okay? I can't run the show. I can't... I mean, I gotta work. I gotta save marriages. Come on! Someone else step up. I'll bring you the ideas. You step up, make Gator Ball a reality. Okay. Anyways, you know, we like to always wrap up the show with a hero story. And today's hero is a four year old boy. Listen, I mean, uh, listen to this. A crazy, cool story. It's a woman's actions have been credited for saving a four year old boy's life. She held his head straight until the paramedics arrived. Four-year-old boy might not have survived a horrific car accident. Had a good Samaritan not happened upon the scene, reports Boise Station KBOI. The accident occurred when Brandy Gonzalez was driving from Nevada to Idaho with her son Killian, and their car smashed into another um, after sliding on ice. Leah Woodward and her husband saw the accident unfold and stopped to help. We could hear a kid screaming and a little baby screaming, Woodward tells the station. Her husband, a police officer, smashed the back window so that they could reach the boy. And Woodward then held his head straight until paramedics could free him, according to the family's GoFundMe page. In addition to a broken arm, broken ribs, and ruptured spleen, Killian had been clinically decapitated, reports KBOI, describing that as a rare condition where his skull was separated from his spine. Less than 1% of the victims survived the injury, but today Killian is eating, sitting up, and walking on his own. Doctors expect he'll make a full recovery, which is more remarkable because he didn't need surgery or a halo brace. The usual necessities for survivors of such an injury. Woodward saved my baby. She gave him back, said Gonzalez, who broke her arm, her femur, her tibia, ankle, and remains in the hospital, too. But she says she's just happy that the both escaped alive. There's a reason we're here, and we're just going to try and get every day uh, to try to figure out why we were saved. So, heroes of the day, that's the show, folks. We can't do it without you. We'll be back again tomorrow. Remember, you're a hero, too. And until tomorrow, take care of each other and make it a great one. We'll talk tomorrow.